Welcome to Hackstack, the show that gives you all the tips, tricks and advice you need to increase your productivity, lower your stress level and find ultimate purpose in life. All done, one simple step at a time. And now, here is your host, Coz. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to episode numero tres. And for those of you that aren't bilingual, that means... uh. Welcome to the big show. This is episode number three of Hackstack. As usual, if you haven't listened to the first two uh, episodes yet, please do so as we are still in the prerequisite portion of the podcast curriculum. Uh, Later, we may be able to to take a break and get over to some elective classes um, and catching a few podcasts here and there. But for right now, I highly recommend listening to these podcasts in order, show by show and stack by stack. So I want to start off today's show uh, by reading just a few names for you. Norm Johnson, John Carney, Gary Anderson, and Nick Lowry. So if you could hold those names in the back of your memory banks for just a second. So how are you guys feeling today? Has your mindset started to change, uh, even just a little bit, man, we live in a a great country, don't we? Uh, in episode one, we listened to, uh, Zig Ziglar, uh, good old country boy with a really, really thick Southern accent that usually makes me smile when I hear it. Uh, in episode two, we got to hear from someone from a radically different background than Zig Ziglar. And he gave us some killer motivation. And that person was Eric Thomas, AKA the hip hop Preacher. So this is my little tribute to hip hop here. This is a uh, kid and play getting funky. Yes, sir. For you guys uh, keeping track at home, that's three episodes and three hip hop references. Uh, so I don't know. We're starting to trend. I'll see if I can t- continue that. But uh, anyway, back to the show. Um, oh, here's a side hack for you. Um, go on to YouTube and find how to do the kid and play kick step and learn how to do it. It's a invaluable tool in life. I guarantee you will never be in a room doing the kid and play kick step. And, um, there will be smiles on every face. Now I can't promise they will be, uh, laughing with you. It could be laughing at you, but that's a hack you want to put in your back pocket. Um, if people aren't smiling, just start doing the kid and play kick step and the smiles will, uh, quickly spread across people's face. Just trust me on that one. I speak from personal advice. So anyway, back to the show. Um, Eric Thomas, the hip hop preacher, um, two great speakers, right? They come from worlds apart, but y- but both are very, very successful. Uh, and that just goes to show you the power of your thinking. So hopefully your mindset is starting to change. And even if it's slowly, that's okay. Just keep listening. Um, so how'd you do with your homework? Did you do your self-evaluation on the five F's? Uh, that being fitness, finances, family, friends, and faith. Hopefully you chatted with your success buddy about where you stand on some of those five issues. Um, and if you haven't, that's okay. Hopefully at least you started to contemplate um, where you stand and, and what are some of your weaknesses are in those areas. Um So this is the third podcast and we've only had one homework assignment and that's why I feel it's so important, right? We got to know where we're starting from to figure out where we want to go. Um, 
And let's just go and do a quick review of some of the hacks we've learned. Really, it's only just one hack. Episode one was uh, the mother of all hacks, and that's to listen to audio material doing the things you are already doing anyway. Uh, but I haven't told you exactly what to listen to yet. Uh, and trust me, in the future, there will be tons upon tons of book recommendations coming your way from me. Uh, but in general, I would I would tell you to focus on your weak areas while at the same time not neglecting your areas of strength. Um, so if you, you make a ton of money, but your relationships uh, are suffering a little bit, you know, I wouldn't necessarily suggest you keep reading business books or money books or personal finance books. You know, maybe it's time to focus on, um, you know, family relationship type books, um, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, and, and I know a lot of you out there, this may be the exception, but I know a lot of you are just absolutely crushing it in the physical fitness department. Um, you, you run 5Ks, you run half marathons, full marathons, you're doing Zumba, Pilates, yoga, uh, CrossFit, um, the whole nine yards. You are, you're really on top of it. You probably read all the fitness blogs. Uh, you've got your diet down to a T. Um, and that's great. But if your finances are a complete disaster, um, you may want to start to focus on, um, I'm not telling you to stop exercising, but maybe focus on some of your, your other areas that, that need help. So, uh, you know, the, you'll often hear the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, but it's probably more accurate to say, uh, the grass is green where you water it. So, um, if you're neglecting one area, the grass is going to start to get brown and you're going to start to see some negative consequences from that. So, uh, if you think back to the, the first podcast, uh, the CEOs that read, you know, 40 to 50 to 60 books per year, uh, and they're making a ton more money than the quote unquote average worker, um, that probably, and not in all cases, but sometimes that comes at a high price, not a monetary price, but uh, a price with uh, distant relationships, um, you know, suffering from, you know, physical ailments, because uh, some of these other areas get neglected. And uh, like we've alluded to many times in the past, um, all of these things are important. So we got to make sure we water the grass uh, in every area. But anyway, I will give you uh, more book recommendations on these specific areas uh, a little bit later on. Uh, for now, back to the golf analogy. Uh, we've got our grip kind of under control. Uh, we've got our left arm straight. We're working on our stance. We've, uh, we're, we're starting to work on our backswing right now. And, and if all goes well, we'll start uh, to actually swing at golf balls in episode four. But right now, we're still sort of focusing on the theory and the backswing um, before we actually put some of this stuff into to actions. So I have a treat for you. I told you you should be listening to audiobooks, um, and I've got a treat. I've got one actually right here, right now, one for you to check out. Uh, it's a book I listened to about, I'd say about a year ago, and it pretty much brought together all my thoughts in a clear, concise I don't know, just one concept. And I was like, man, this is, this is the thing I was missing. I sort of had pieces here and there, and this is the one thing that kind of, kind of brought it all together. Um, it's not this earth shattering concept. It's actually remarkably simple, but I think you'll really, really appreciate it. And there's lots of stories in here that reemphasize, um, similar points and kind of drive the point home. 
and it is a book called The Slight Edge. Uh, it's by a guy named Jeff Olson, O-L-S-O-N, Jeff Olson. And fortunately for us, um, it's f- actually free on YouTube. You can get the whole book on YouTube. Uh, I've downloaded the audio and edited it up just a little bit to make it uh, flow a little bit better. Um, there's a full interview with the author at the start of the YouTube video. Uh, I thought it, it would be better uh, just to go straight into the book. If you want to see that interview with him, uh, you can feel free to find that on YouTube. And it, it's a good thing it's on YouTube because all the hacks I mentioned in the first episode, you know, use Audible and all that good stuff. Um, this is one of the few books that is actually not on Audible. So you would actually have to order this on CD, um, which, man, as time marches on, and CD seem like they're going to the way of the uh, the eight track and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah. So anyway, you're in for a treat. This is a really, really good book. I think it's a foundational must listen to book, which is why we are going to uh, listen to that right now. Uh, but before we start, I want you to think again of your weakest area in in the five F's. And while you're listening to this book. I want you to think about that area because you're going to hear a lot of things in this book that will give you some ideas on how to improve. And if you sort of have that weak area in mind, whether it's uh, relationships or finances or your fitness, um, most likely you'll, you'll get a little, uh, little information on each area. But um, if you can focus on that weak area, I think it'll, it'll really start to open up your mind to the possibilities of, of what can be done. Um, Okay, but before we start the book, I have a few more names to read. They are Joe Montana, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning, Walter Payton, Tom Brady, Jerry Rice, and Drew Brees. Now, this second group of names you've probably heard of. These are all high-profile NFL Super Bowl champion players. And they're playing the high-profile positions, quarterback, running back, wide receiver. Um, These are the big superstars on the teams. Uh, They get the endorsement, the commercials, the glory. Um, But let me go back to that that first group of names. Um, Guess what? Norm Johnson, John Carney, Gary Anderson, Nick Lowry. These guys, if you Google the top scores in NFL history... Um, that first group of names, they're all on top. These people that you have never heard of, the field goal kickers, right? Um, they're all place kickers, the non-glamorous jobs, the afterthoughts. Uh, but one thing they do very, very well is they very consistently do the little things, the extra points, the 20-yard field goals, week after week and year after year. So I want you to keep that, that thought in your mind as you start to listen to this book and um, the one phrase is consistency, right? So these, these place kickers, they've got one thing on pretty much everybody else. They're consistent when people sometimes don't care about them or don't notice them. So consistency is the key. All right. So here you go. Enjoy the slight edge, man. It's a game changer. Enjoy. This is an audio recording of the book, The Slight Edge, written by Jeff Olson. In it, you'll learn the answers to the questions you've asked over and over again. Why is it that some people seem to make dream after dream come true, while others spend their lives building someone else's dream? Why are some people successful and some people failures? 
Why do some people never seem to manage to take the time to stay in shape, while others run a few miles each day, even though their lives are just as busy? Why are some people digging deeper and deeper into debt, while others just keep earning more money? What is the difference, really? The difference is the slight edge. This phenomenal book and recording explain how to create powerhouse results from simple daily activities and also tell of the catalyst that can make all the information in other self-help books actually work in your life. Two Stories The Water Hyacinth The Water Hyacinth is a beautiful, delicate-looking little plant. Prized as an ornament, it sports six-petaled flowers ranging from a lovely purplish-blue to lavender to pink. You can find it floating on the surface of ponds and warm climates around the world. The water hyacinth is also one of the most productive plants on Earth. Its reproductive rate astonishes botanists and ecologists. The method it prefers for colonizing a new area is to grow by doubling itself, sending out short runner stems that become daughter plants. If a pond surface is fairly still and undisturbed, the water hyacinth may cover the entire pond in 30 days. On the first day, you won't even notice it. In fact, for the first few weeks, you'd have to search very hard to find it. On day 15, it will cover perhaps a single square foot of the pond surface, a barely significant dollop of color dotting the expanse of placid green. On the 20th day, two-thirds of the way to the end of the month, you may happen to notice a dense little patch of floating foliage about the size of a small mattress. You would easily be forgiven if you mistook it for a boy's inflatable life raft left behind during a family picnic. On day 29, one half of the pond's surface will be open water. On the 30th day, the entire pond will be covered by a blanket of water hyacinth. You will not see any water at all. The Choice A wealthy man, nearing the end of his days, summoned his twin sons to his bedside. Before he died, he told them he wanted to pass on to them the opportunity to experience the richness of life he had enjoyed for his many years on earth. If I could do so, I would give you both the world, he told his boys. But this is not possible, for even I do not own the entire world and everything in it. But there are three treasures I have had good fortune to experience in my life, and it is my fondest wish, my dying wish, that you would both have these three treasures. The first gift is easy to give and never runs out. I have been giving it to you both since you were born and will die in peace knowing that you both already have it in abundance. The second gift is easy to give, but not always easy to have. For some, it never runs out, while for others, it constantly runs out. This gift I give you now but whether or not you keep it will be up to you. The third gift is impossible to give, but can only be gained. I have been showing it to you both your entire lives, but cannot say whether or not you have gained it. This gift I cannot give you, but I can give you an opportunity to see it one last time before I die. The boys both wept to hear their father speak of his approaching death. But he smiled and bade them hush with a wave of his hand. I see your grief, but in that grief you may be happy, 
for it is evidence of the first gift, which you have in abundance. Do you know what the first gift is? The two boys dried their tears and furrowed their brows in deep thought. Easy to give, but it never runs out. Suddenly, the first boy clapped his hands and said, Love! The first gift is love! The father smiled. The boy was right. And the second gift? he asked them. They again became quiet with thought. Easy to give, but not always easy to have. The second boy looked up with a start. Money! Is the second gift money? It was indeed. For some, it never runs out, while for others, it constantly runs out. And the third? Hmm. Impossible to give can only be gained. This time, both boys remained buried in thought. Neither could come up with an answer. The father smiled again, a little sadly this time. He lifted a beautiful lacquer box from the bedside table onto his lap, opened it, and looked inside. I offer you both a choice. He beckoned the boys to move closer. One month from today, you both will turn twenty-one. I will no longer be with you, for my life has run its course. On that day, thirty-one days from now, I will be well on my way to the next world, and the two of you will set off to make your way in this one. Yet I do not wish to set foot on this journey empty-handed. My last gift to you on the day of your departure will be a purse to finance your adventures. What goes into each purse is your choice. He reached both hands inside the box and then held them out to the boys. In one hand, he held a sheaf of one thousand crisp new one thousand dollar bills, one million dollars, cash. In the other hand, he held a shiny new copper penny. If you take the million in cash, you may take it with you or leave it in your purse for safekeeping until the day of your journey. Your purse will be held by my treasury director. If you take the penny, you may also take it with you or leave it in your purse. However, if you choose the penny, my treasury director has instructions to double the contents of your purse every day. He took out another lacquer box, identical to the first, opened it, and took out another stack of $1,000 bills and another penny. Here is one million. Here is one penny. Each of you have the same choice to make. Whatever you do not take, I will return to my treasury to add to my estate. Now, go, rest, and think. Tomorrow morning, come back and tell me your choice. All night, the first boy lay in bed thinking, What should I do? Which should I take? What is the lesson? The second boy lay awake, too, but he asked himself different questions. He had made his decision before his father had finished the sentence. Now he was making careful plans for what to do for the next thirty-one days. When morning came, the second boy sprang into action. After securing the million in cash from his father, he hired a sharp consultant and a manager to help him execute his carefully wrought plan. They rented out a hotel suite, in which they conducted exhaustive back-to-back -back interviews for the next six days. By week's end, they had hired a staff of the finest financial advisors in the land.
The boys' new Cracker Jack Money Man team spent the second week in intensive, round-the-clock brainstorming sessions, drafting proposal after proposal, seeking the smartest, most cost-effective investment and leveraging strategies, both long-term and short-term, to help the wealthy man's son turn his million into a genuine fortune. By week three, the best plans had been selected, winnowed, examined, combed, explored, game-theoried, road-tested, computer-simulated, and dissected. With all their I's dotted and their T's crossed, the boys' advisors were locked and loaded and ready to rumble. Off they went into the battlefields of commerce and speculation. The boy spent the next few days keeping in close contact with his far-flung financial team by telephone. But by midweek, it seemed clear that things were well in hand and he was not needed. He decided to pay a visit to his brother, whom he had not seen since breakfast on the morning after that long and sleepless night. When he arrived at their home, he was shocked to hear his brother's account of the past few weeks. After that excited breakfast, the first boy had also paid a visit to his father. But without explaining why, he announced that he had made the second choice. He had taken the penny, left it in the purse, then returned to his room and began reading from one of his favorite books. The second day, he visited again and was allowed to peek into the purse. The shiny new penny had been joined by a companion. On the third day, he found four pennies. On the fourth, there were eight. And on the fifth, sixteen. Then, thirty-two. By the end of the week, just as his brother's ace financial team was assembling in the beautiful hotel suite for the first time, he had amassed a nest egg of sixty-four cents. By the end of week two, with nearly half the month gone, his piles of pennies had swelled to just shy of ninety dollars. Eighty-one dollars and ninety-two cents, to be exact. Now, a few days into the third week, the purse's contents had grown a bit more. He now had a sum of $655.36, he proudly pointed out, easily enough to sustain him on the road for a full week. But you poor sap, his brother cried on hearing his story. I can't believe you went for the penny. It's not too late. Visit our father. See if he will relent and give you your own million. Or if he insists in prorating the amount, then even just half the million. It's better than scrabbling by on a few paltry hundred. And if he refuses, you've got me to help. I can't stand the idea of you venturing out into the world with scarcely enough to feed yourself for a week. But the brother seemed unperturbed and wouldn't hear of it. Toward the end of week four, the second boy's top advisors brought him some worrisome news. The markets, it seemed, had gone a bit soft, taken a bit of a tumble, actually. The team had acted quickly and salvaged what they could, but their earlier rosy projections would most certainly need to be revised downward. The boy thanked them for their vigilance and waited, fretting and anxious. At the close of the week, the team brought mixed news. Some investments had performed quite well. Others had suffered. All in all, the boy had made a modest gain— Starting with his $1 million in cash, his team had succeeded in parlaying that into nearly $1.5 million. Unfortunately, his expenses, including their commissions, tax, bills for the hotel suite, broker fees, and the rest, came to just over half a million. The boy had ended the month with just a bit less than he started. 
In a panic, he rushed to see his brother, to see how he had fared with his $655.36, only to receive yet another shock. On day 28, his brother's purse of pennies had passed the $1 million mark. On day 29, the $2.5 million mark. Yesterday, on day 30, it doubled to more than $5 million. The boy who chose the penny had discovered the extraordinary power that some have called the eighth wonder of the world, the remarkable creative force of compound interest. And today, the boy who chose the penny was worth more than $10 million, $10,737,418.24. This son gained the third gift. The first gift, easy to give, and which never runs out, is love. The second gift, easy to give but not always easy to have, which never runs out for some and is always running out for others, is money. The third gift, which cannot be given but can only be gained, is wisdom. A question. Two boys, two powerful choices, riches or poverty, life or death. You are making those same choices every day, every hour, and the choices you make are spreading out through your life, just like the water hyacinth. You may not see the results today or tomorrow or even next year. In fact, by the time you finally do see the results, the process will probably be so far along that the surface of the pond will be completely covered. The question is, covered with what? The Slight Edge Philosophy People are looking for a breakthrough. The philosophy of the craps table and roulette wheel. I don't believe they'll ever find it. I've had colossal failures and I've had remarkable successes. And my experience is neither happens as a breakthrough. They happen through the slight edge. The purpose of this book is to have you understand the slight edge philosophy, to make it part of how you see the world and how you live your life every day. To understand patience, to understand that little steps, compounded, do make a difference. That the things you do every single day, the things that don't look dramatic, that don't even look like they matter, do matter. That they not only make a difference, they make all the difference. Success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. There is a natural progression to everything in life. Plant, cultivate, harvest. The slight edge is having faith in the process of simple, positive actions repeated over time. The faith that miracles do happen if you know when to trust the process. Chapter 2. The Secret of Easy Things Why is it that some people seem to make dream after dream come true, while others spend their lives building someone else's dream? Why are some people successful and some people failures? Why do some families have such great relationships, such warmth and fun and caring closeness, while others are perennially angry with each other? Why are some people positive and upbeat, while others are miserably negative, constantly complaining and criticizing? Why is it some people never seem to manage the time to stay in shape, while others run a few miles each day even though their lives are just as busy? Why are some people digging deeper and deeper into debt, 
while others just keep earning more money. What's the difference, really? If you simply look around you, you can see it. Most of us aren't making it. My observation is that about one person in 20 is achieving a significant measure of his or her goals in life, financial, professional, personal, marital, spiritual, in terms of health, in whatever terms you want to look at. 95% are either failing or falling short. What are the 5% doing that the 95% are not? There's only one difference. It's not heredity, education, looks, talent, or inheritance. It's not preparedness meeting opportunity, and it's not chance either. There's only one difference, and that difference is the slight edge. If you will learn to understand and apply the slight edge, I'll guarantee you that in time, and chances are less time than you would imagine, you will have what you want. You will be among the 5%. You will be successful. And you will achieve those aims, goals, and dreams by doing simple things. A bold claim, I know, and I only make it because I know it's true. I've seen it too many times to doubt it. If you learn to understand and apply the slight edge, your life will become filled with hundreds of thousands of small, seemingly insignificant actions, all of them easy to do, none of them mysterious, complex, or difficult. And those actions will create your success. That's what successful people do. Simple things that are easy to do. Oh, wait a minute. How are these simple everyday actions supposed to create all this wonderful happiness, health, and success for me? If they're all so easy to do, if anyone could do them. If these are the things anyone can do, why are only 5% successful? Excellent question. Because they're all so easy not to do. And while everyone could do them, most won't. Fundamentally, we all take pretty much the same actions every day. We eat, sleep, think, feel, talk, and listen. We have relationships and friendships. We each have 24 hours a day, 8,760 hours a year. And we each fill these hours one way or the other with a sequence of little tasks and actions, any one of which is seemingly insignificant. The difference that will make all the difference between success and failure between achieving the quality of life you want and settling for less than you desire and deserve lies 100% in which of those little insignificant actions you choose to do. This is why we are all capable of doing what it takes to be successful. We are all capable of being winners. And yes, that includes you. The slight edge is always working. For you or against you, the slight edge is already at work in all of our lives. The purpose of this book is to help you become aware of it, how it is working in your life every day, every hour, every moment, in every step you take and every choice you make. Everything you need to do to transform your life is easy to do. Here's the problem. Every action that is easy to do is also easy not to do. Why are these simple yet crucial things easy not to do? Because if you don't do them, they won't kill you, at least not today. You won't suffer or fail or blow it today. Something is easy not to do when it won't bankrupt you, destroy your career, ruin your relationships or wreck your health today. What's more, not doing it is usually more comfortable than doing it would be. 
But that simple, seemingly insignificant error in judgment, compounded over time, will kill you. It will destroy you and ruin your chances for success. Just not today. You can count on it. It's the slight edge. That's the choice you face every day, every hour. A simple positive action repeated over time. A simple error in judgment repeated over time. You can always count on the slight edge. And unless you make it work for you, the slight edge will work against you. We live in a result-focused world. We expect to see results, and we expect to see them now. Push the button, the light flicks on. Step on the scale, look in the mirror, check the account balance online 24-7. Give me feedback, trip a sensor, hit a buzzer, tell me, tell me, tell me it's working. But that's not how success is built. Success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Progressive means success is a process, not a destination. It's something you experience gradually, over time. And here's how real success is built. By the time you get the feedback, the real work's already done. When you get to the point where everyone else can see your results, tell you what good choices you've made, notice your good fortune, slap you on the back and tell you how lucky you are, the critical slight edge choices you made are ancient history. And chances are, at the time you actually made those choices, nobody noticed but you. And even you wouldn't have noticed unless you understood the slight edge. It's never too late to start. It's always too late to wait. I believe your health is the most prized possession. It amazes me how many people pay no attention to their health. You know what you're supposed to eat. We all do. Fresh fruits and vegetables, complex carbs, salads, whole foods, lean meats, more fish and poultry than beef. You know it. I know it. We all know it. So why do so many of us still go out and chow down cheeseburgers and fries every day? I'll tell you why. Because it won't kill us. Not today. If you ate a cheeseburger and immediately suffered a near-fatal heart attack, would you ever go near a cheeseburger again? I doubt it. It may take 20 or 30 years, but when you add up all the compounded interest on all that high-fat, artery-clogging dietary mayhem, eventually your poor, overworked heart just quits, stops dead. It's easy to eat well, and it's easy not to. A simple positive action, a simple error in judgment. Either way, it's the slight edge at work, working for you or working against you. Invisible results. Why do you walk past the exercise bike? Because it's easy. If you don't exercise today, will that kill you? No, of course not. You know what you need to do to stay healthy and feel fit and live a long life. Get your heart rate up, a little over normal, for 20 minutes, three times a week. You know it, I know it, everyone knows it, and it's easy to do. But it's also easy not to do. And if you don't do it today or tomorrow or the next day, you won't suddenly drop dead and you won't suddenly put on 20 pounds and you won't suddenly lose all your muscle tone and flop around like a marionette with his strings cut off. But that simple error in judgment, compounded over time, will take you down and out. You see one person eating a good meal and the person next to him eating an awful meal. One person saving a penny, 
another spending a penny. One taking a brisk walk, another sitting and watching the news. Is there any difference between the two? Nothing you can see. Not today, and probably not tomorrow. It's easy to conclude and live as if it doesn't really make any difference. The difference between success and failure is not dramatic. In fact, the difference between success and failure is so subtle, most people miss it. They hold the philosophy that what they do doesn't really matter. It's not hard to see how people come to this understanding of life. I don't blame them. It's completely understandable. It's just not the truth. The truth is, what you do matters. What you do today matters. What you do every day matters. Those little things that will make you successful in life, that will secure your health, your happiness, your fulfillment, your dreams, are simple, subtle, tiny things that nobody will see, nobody will applaud, nobody will even notice. They are those things that, at the time you do them, often feel like they make absolutely no difference, like they don't matter. They do. Chapter 3 The Secret of Time So, you walk a little today and get your heart rate up a bit. You lift a few weights, you eat a little differently, then tomorrow morning you wake up and look in the mirror and see the same old flubber. You have to be pretty well along the path to see any significant results. What keeps you doing this simple thing day after day? Willpower. It's like my dad, or mom, my teacher, my boss, my older brother, my minister, myself, always told me, I just need more willpower. Really? I don't think so. Do you want to change? If so, I can show you how to tap into the most powerful force for change there is. Would you like to know what it is? Are you ready? Here it is. Time. Position your daily actions so time is working for instead of against you. Because time will either promote you or expose you. What keeps you on the path is your slight edge philosophy, which includes your understanding of the secret of time. Knowing the secret of time, you say, if I stay on this road long enough, I'll see the results I seek. It's not a question of your mood, your feelings, or your attitude. And it's not a question of willpower. It's a question of simply knowing. When you enter a darkened room, why does your hand reach out for the light switch? It's because you know that when you hit the switch, the light will go on. You don't have to give yourself positive self-talk about how you really ought to hit that light switch or set up a system of rewards and punishments for yourself around whether you follow through or not with hitting the light switch. You don't need any rigmarole. You just hit the light switch. Why? Because you know what will happen. You know. It's the exact same thing here. You walk a little every day, lift a few weights, eat a little better, and leave the penny in the purse. Hit the light switch. Because you know it will make you healthy and wealthy. The light will turn on. It's the exact same thing, no different, except for one thing, and that is time. Instant Life if you were offered the same choice the wealthy man gave his sons, would you choose the million dollars or the penny? Most people would make the second boy's choice, the right-now money. After all, a million dollars in cash, right now. Millions of people around the globe are fooled every minute of every hour of every day 
by those two seductive little words, right now. It's become a truism to say we live in a push-button, instant gratification world. But this is a truth very much worth pondering, because it doesn't simply mean we have more impatient temperaments than our parents do. It represents an entirely different way of thinking, an entirely different philosophy. There is a natural progression in life, which everyone knew intimately back in the days when we were an agrarian society. You plant, then you cultivate, and finally you harvest. Plant, cultivate, harvest. In today's world, everyone wants to go directly from plant to harvest. We plant the seed by joining the gym, and then get frustrated when a few days go by and there's no fitness harvest. Taking recreational drugs is an effort to go from plant directly to harvest. So is taking steroids to enhance athletic performance. So is robbing a bank. So is playing the lottery. The step we keep overlooking and skipping is the step of cultivating. And that, unlike planting and harvesting, takes place only through the patient dimension of time. Because we are a culture raised on television and movies, we've lost track of time. In a film, we never see the little steps, repeated hundreds of times, which create the result. There isn't time. We might see a quick sequence of steps that conveys a super-compressed sense of the evolution of the thing, the falling-in-love montage in practically every romantic comedy, or the training sequence in every sports movie. But these little slight edge-like dramas never last longer than 30 or 40 seconds. In real life, everything important happens through time. Success, remember, is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. All generations born since the advent of television, and especially since the rapid cutting style of MTV stepped up the pace, have a hard time grasping that. Which is one reason the slight edge is more important than ever. Where's the drama? In a way, it would be a simpler matter if making the right choices were a big deal. If it were a dramatic, huge, difficult thing. Why? Because then it would be obvious. You wouldn't need this book. The challenge is that making the right choices is not dramatic. When the hero makes the right choice in a movie, it's dramatic, all right. Problem is, your life is not a movie. Deciding whether or not to kill Darth Vader with your lightsaber is a dramatic choice. Deciding whether or not to fasten your seatbelt is an undramatic, boring, mundane little choice that nobody will even witness. But guess which choice has the power to take a few hundred thousand lives each year? Hint, it's not the lightsaber. For 21 years, the wealthy man gave his sons everything he had, including all his love, all his care, and a magnificent place to live. But when they turned 21, he gave them the most valuable gift of all. He gave them a choice. The most valuable gift of all is a gift that you always have. You always have a choice. No matter what you've done in your life up until today, no matter where you are and how far down you may have slid on the failure curve, you can start fresh, building a positive pattern of success at any time, including right now. But you need to have faith in the process because you won't see it happening at first. If you base your choices on the evidence, on what you can see, you're sunk. You need to base your choices on your philosophy, on what you know, not what you see. 
If you want to understand and apply the slight edge to create the life of your dreams, you can't make your choices based on the evidence of your eyes. You need to make them based on what you know, on your philosophy. What happens if you add one small, simple, positive action to the success side? Nothing you can see. What happens if you add one more? Nothing you can see. What happens if you keep adding one more, and one more, and one more, and one more? Way back in the beginning, when you add the first few morsels of positive action, if you judge your choices by the evidence of your eyes, you won't see the scales move at all, and that will frustrate you. It frustrates 19 out of 20 people so much, they quit. And that is the saddest thing I can think of. The Power of Compounding Effort Picture a huge, heavy flywheel, a massive metal disc mounted horizontally on an axle, about 30 feet in diameter, 2 feet thick, and weighing about 5,000 pounds. Now, imagine that your task is to get the flywheel rotating on the axle as fast and for as long as possible. Pushing with great effort, you get the flywheel to inch forward moving almost imperceptibly at first. You keep pushing, and after two or three hours of persistent effort, you get the flywheel to complete one entire turn. You keep pushing, and the flywheel begins to move a bit faster, and with continued great effort, you move it around a second rotation. You keep pushing in a consistent direction. Three turns, four, five, six. The flywheel builds up speed. Seven, eight, you keep pushing. Nine, ten, it builds momentum. Eleven, twelve, moving faster with each turn. Twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred. Consider what author Jim Collins says in the Harper Business book, From Good to Great. Now, suppose someone came along and asked, What was the one big push that caused this thing to go so fast? You wouldn't be able to answer. It's a nonsensical question. Was it the first push, the second, the fifth, the hundredth? No, it was all of them added together in an overall accumulation of effort applied in a consistent direction. Some pushes may have been bigger than others, but any single heave, no matter how large, reflects a small fraction of the entire cumulative effect upon the flywheel. Successful people understand that it is not any one single push on the flywheel but the cumulative total of all their sequential, unfailingly consistent pushes that eventually creates movement of such an astonishing momentum in their lives. Simply by making these right decisions, or making more of them, one at a time, over and over again, you will have enlisted the awesome power of the slight edge on your behalf. The unwanted circumstances, the poor results you've produced in the past, and the evidence of failures in your life may all continue for a time. By putting time on your side, you've marshaled the forces of the slight edge. Your success becomes inevitable. You just need to stay in the process long enough to give it a chance to win. It starts with a choice. Patience is a challenge for people who do not understand the slight edge. How long will it take? How long before you will actually see and feel and smell and touch and be able to spend and enjoy and appreciate the results. How long before you will have the experience of the success you are seeking? Obviously, it's impossible for either of us to say exactly how long. But the truth is, 
In three to five years, you can put virtually anything in your life onto the right track. Think of what you were doing three years ago. It seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Well, three years from now, the things you're doing right now will seem like only yesterday, too. Yet this brief little period of time can change your life. How long will it take? Chances are it will take longer than you want it to. But when the time arrives, you'll be astonished at how quick it seemed. Patience is not an issue for the water hyacinth. It simply goes about its business calmly, quietly doubling until it covers the pond. You can do the same. A penny for your thoughts. Now imagine that instead of a penny doubling every day, it's your health that you're increasing by one penny's worth, then by two pennies, and then four. If you could come up with something that would make you feel one penny's worth better, could you do that every day? Of course. A little moderate exercise, a brisk one-mile walk, a quarter of a mile on a treadmill, not going that fast. Get your heart rate up slightly. No big deal. And your reward? When you get up the next morning, do you feel better? Not really. I mean, not noticeably. Maybe just a little. Say, a penny's worth. Hardly seems worth the effort. And after a week, you're feeling 64 cents worth better. Big deal. You've had to put up with some rainy weather, walk through a few stiff muscles, and miss your favorite news program. Hey, it's really not worth it. But what if you kept doing it anyway? Would you eventually feel like a million bucks? No, you'd feel like 10 million. But you need to start with the penny. Now, imagine that penny is your knowledge. If I told you that reading Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich would change your life, would you sit down and read it cover to cover today? Mind you, that's a 256-page book, and those aren't lightweight pages. Or another classic, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's a 358-pager, and it's not easy reading. Could you read a penny's worth, say, 10 pages? I don't know how much you would get out of 10 pages. Maybe a lot, maybe nothing. Let's say you get nothing. But if you could read 10 pages today, could you read 10 more tomorrow? Of course you could. Anyone who can read could do that. And if you do that, if you keep it up every day for a year, you will have read about a dozen brilliant life-transforming classics. Your mind will be filled with the strategies and know-how to create a startling new level of success. You will have the thoughts of millionaires, all from a penny. But you need to start with the penny. Chapter 5 Someday when I have the money. Someday when I have the time. Someday when I have the skill, the confidence. Have I got shocking news for you. Someday doesn't exist. Never has and never will. There is no someday. There is only today. When tomorrow comes, it will be another day. So will the next day. They all will. There is never anything but today. And some more shocking news. Your ship's not coming in. It's already here. Docked and waiting. You already have the money. You already have the time. You already have the skill, the confidence. You already have everything you need to achieve everything you want. You just can't see it. Why not? Because you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking for the breakthrough, the quantum leap. You're looking for the winning lottery ticket 
in the game that isn't a lottery. Successful people have already grasped the truth that lottery players have not. Life is not a lottery. Success is not a random accident. A big break. The lucky break. The breakthrough. A break in the routine. A break with reality. But that's not how things really work. Okay, then. How do things really work? Look at some real-world problems. William Wilberforce spent his entire career introducing bill after bill to his colleagues in the British Parliament in his efforts to end slavery, only to have them defeated one after the other. From 1788 to 1806, he introduced a new anti-slavery motion and watched it fail every single year for 18 years in a row. Finally, three days before Wilberforce's death in 1833, Parliament passed a bill to abolish slavery, not only in England, but also throughout its colonies. Three decades later, a similar bill would pass in the United States, spearheaded by another man of conscience, who had also spent much of his life failing, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. These were human problems, and they had human solutions, but the only access to them is through the slight edge. All of these real-life heroes understood the slight edge. None of them was hypnotized by the allure of the big break. If they had been, they would never have continued taking the actions they took. And... What would the world look like today? Our cultural mythology, the philosophy our society subscribes to as a group, worships the breakthrough, even when we don't realize that's what we're doing. One small step for man. Nonsense. That wasn't one small step. The guy was on the moon. That was one gigantic step for man. A genuine breakthrough. The small step was when some guy, someone you and I never heard of, first started tinkering with design ideas for how a rocket ship might withstand the intense conditions of spaceflight. There were thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of one small steps for years and years beforehand that all went into that epic 1969 leap of Neil Armstrong's that was televised throughout the world and is still being played over and over in our culture as one of the most deeply ingrained news bites of history. But we don't celebrate any of those real small steps. We don't even know what they are or who made them. The myth of our culture is the giant step, the larger-than-life leap, the heroic effort. No success is immediate, nor is any failure instantaneous. They are both products of the slight edge. The truth of quantum leaps is that they are not larger than life. They're submicroscopic. The actual term quantum leap comes from particle physics, and it does not refer to a huge epic jump. It refers to the fact that energy, after a period of time, will suddenly appear at another level, without our having been able to observe how it got there. It is an exact description of how the water hyacinth moves from day 29 to day 30. Believing in the big break is worse than simply being futile. It's actually dangerous because it can keep you from taking the actions you need to take to create the results you want. Our society is sliding rapidly into an ever-increasing economic crisis of poor health. Endemic adult-onset diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and a score of other chronic illnesses 
have steadily fed a monstrously overgrown health care system, tax system, and social security system, and there isn't a single cause anywhere in sight. As I'm writing this, early in 2005, several of our most widely used over-the-counter drugs have suddenly been found to make things worse. The drumbeat litany goes on as it has for decades. A cure is just around the corner. We're so close. The latest research says, with your dollars, we'll soon see a breakthrough. A cure is not just around the corner. The cure is right here, under our noses and on our plates. There is no mystery for those who know how to recognize the slight edge at work. Our entire health crisis is nothing but one set of little decisions made daily and compounded daily, winning out over another set of little decisions made daily and compounded daily. The Winning Edge Do you know what makes the difference between a 300-hitting baseball star with a multi-million dollar contract and a 260-plus player making only an average salary? Less than one additional hit per week over the course of the season. And do you know what makes the difference between getting that hit and striking out? About one quarter inch up or down the bat. And it's not just in sports, it's in everything. In 1998, a book called The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas J. Stanley and William D. Danko became a runaway bestseller. What so amazed readers was the fact that people profiled in the book were incredibly ordinary, everyday sorts of folks with normal and even mediocre-level jobs who had created extraordinary wealth by a truly remarkable, unexpected, amazing strategy. It consisted of, you guessed it, doing little, mundane, ordinary, insignificant, everyday things with their money. If you had followed any of these people around for the 20 or 30 or 40 years during which they were amassing their financial empires, I promise you it would not have been breathtakingly exciting. No more exciting than it would be to follow an Olympic athlete in training every day from his 3.30 a.m. wake-up call to his exhausted collapse into bed at night. We love rags-to-riches stories and underdog-becomes-hero stories, and we use them to motivate people because they're so exciting and dramatic, aren't they? Actually, no. The truth is, they're not exciting at all when they're really happening. They only seem dramatic in their retelling. But the reality is that the rags-to-riches success story person has gotten to where he is by making mundane, quiet, little, slight-edge decisions and repeating simple disciplines day in and day out. It's not exciting to read about. It's not exciting to make a movie about. It's not even exciting to do. But believe me, it sure is exciting when you finally get to experience the results. No matter in what arena in life or work or play, the difference between winning and losing, the gap that separates success and failure, is so slight, so subtle, most never see it. Superman may leap tall buildings in a single bound. Here on Earth, we win through the slight edge. Chapter 6. Two Life Paths There was a time when the people of the world were convinced the sun revolved around the Earth. A few visionaries stubbornly refused to accept what was obvious to everyone else. And because Copernicus, Galileo, and a handful of others risked their lives to choose the road less traveled, the rest of the world eventually caught on to what is now obvious to everyone in the 21st century. 
the Earth revolves around the Sun. What's more, in the last hundred years, we've discovered that even space is curved, though that one's still a little hard for most people to wrap their minds around. The truth is, everything is curved. There is no true straight line. Everything is changing, including your life. You are on a journey, your life path. That path is a curve. You're curving either upward or downward. It may seem to you that today was much like yesterday. It wasn't. It was different. Every day is. Appearances can be deceiving, and almost always are. There may be times when things seem to be on a steady, even keel. This is an illusion. In life, there is no such thing as staying in the same place. There are no straight lines. Everything curves. If you're not increasing, you're decreasing. Above and below the slight edge. Wherever you may be in your own life, understanding the slight edge gives you the tools to start fresh, right now, and place yourself firmly on the upper curve. The upper curve is the formula for success. A few simple disciplines repeated every day. The lower curve is the formula for failure. A few simple errors in judgment repeated every day. The upper curve represents that one person out of twenty, the five percent who are successful and happy at the end of their lives. The lower curve represents the other nineteen, the ninety-five percent who reach their golden years angry and bitter and have no idea or concept of how they got there or why. Life, it seems to them, is unfair, and that's just how it is. But you and I know that's not the case. It's not a matter of being fair or unfair. It's pure geometry, the geometry of time. Most people hold time as their enemy. They seek to avoid the passage of time and strive to have results now. That's a choice based on a philosophy. Successful people understand that time is their friend. In every choice I make, every course of action I take, I always have time in mind. Time is my ally. That too is a choice based on a philosophy. Time will be your friend or your enemy. It will promote you or expose you. It depends purely upon which side of this curve you decide to ride. It's entirely up to you. If you're doing the simple disciplines, time will promote you. If you're doing the few simple errors in judgment, time will expose you. No matter how well you appear to be doing right now, time. Is the great equalizer. Blame and responsibility. John Burroughs said, "A man can fail many times, but he isn't a failure until he begins to blame somebody else." If you want to measure where you are, if you want to know whether you're on the success curve or the failure curve, or if you want to assess anyone else and determine which curve they're on, here's how: there is one attitude. One state of mind which overwhelmingly predominates either side of the curve. The predominant state of mind displayed by those people on the failure curve is blame. The predominant state of mind displayed by those on the success curve is responsibility. People on the success curve live a life of responsibility. They take full responsibility for who they are, where they are, and everything that happens to them. Taking responsibility liberates you. In fact, it is perhaps the single most liberating thing there is. Even when it hurts, even when it doesn't seem fair, 
When you don't take responsibility, when you blame others, circumstances, fate, or chance, you give away your power. When you take and retain full responsibility, even when others are wrong or the situation is genuinely unfair, you keep your life's reins in your own hands. Negative and difficult things happen to all of us. Most of them are mostly or completely out of our control. It's how we react, how we view those circumstances and conditions that makes the difference between success and failure. And that is completely within our control. The five percenters who dwell on the upper curve know there are no excuses. They understand and accept the fact that nobody can do it to them and nobody can do it for them. They are aware of the slight edge and they understand how it operates in their lives. People on the failure curve are masters of blame. They blame everyone and everything. The economy, the government, the oil crisis, the weather, their neighbors, the rich, the poor, the young, the old, their kids, their parents, their boss, their co-workers, their employees. Life itself. The inhabitants of the lower curve are life's victims. The great mass of done-tos. I know a man whose self-declared philosophy was... Life is an unpleasant practical joke which occurs somewhere between birth and death. On which side of the curve do you think he was living? Where was he headed? Can you imagine what results that thought, life is an unpleasant practical joke, would create when magnified by the water-hyacinth-like force of time? You know the expression, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. It's not even a question of what you wish for. Be careful what you think. Because what you think, multiplied by actions plus time, will create what you get. Responsibility is declaring oneself as cause in the matter. It is a context from which to live one's life. Responsibility is not a burden, fault, praise, blame, credit, shame, or guilt. All these include judgments and evaluations of good and bad, right and wrong, or better and worse. They are not responsibility. Responsibility starts with the willingness to deal with a situation from and with the point of view, whether at the moment, realized or not, that you are the source of what you are, what you do, and what you have. Werner Erhard said, It is not right or even true to declare oneself as cause in the matter. It's just empowering. By standing for yourself as cause, what happens shifts from happening to you to just happening, and ultimately to happening as a result of your being the cause in the matter. The people on the upper half of the slight edge curve are the cause of what happens in their lives. They view all the forces that brought them to this point, God, parents, teachers, childhood, circumstances, you name it, with gratitude and appreciation and without blame and they view what comes next as their call. Are you your own cause? Successful people do what unsuccessful people are not willing to do. They take full responsibility for how the slight edge is working in their lives. Unsuccessful people blame the slight edge for their lives not working. Successful people know they cannot afford that luxury. People on the failure curve tend to focus on their past, and it pulls them down. People on the success curve focus on their future, and it pulls them up. People on the success curve don't ignore the past, but they use it as a tool, 
one of many with which they build their futures. People who live on the failure curve use the past as a weapon with which they bludgeon themselves and the people around them, regrets, recriminations, remorse, and retribution. People on the success curve never hold a grudge, not because it's morally wrong, although they may agree with that reason too, but because it gets in the way, it slows them down. They're too busy moving toward the future to be staring into the rearview mirror. One of the quickest and most direct routes to getting yourself up and onto the success curve is to get out of the past. Review the past, but only for the purpose of making a better plan. Review it, understand it, and take responsibility for the errors you've made, and use it as a tool to do differently in the future. And don't spend a great deal of time doing even that. The future is a far better tool than the past. The future is your most powerful tool and your best friend. Devote some serious, focused time and effort into designing a crystal-clear picture of where you're going. When you do have a clear picture of the future and consciously put time every day into letting yourself be drawn forward by that future, it will pull you through whatever friction and static you encounter in the present and whatever tugging and clutching you may feel from the past. One last thing about past and future, and I've saved the best for last. You can't change the past. You can change the future. Would you rather be influenced by something you can't change or something you can? Where are you headed? In Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, some of the most amazing observations come from the Cheshire Cat as he speaks to Alice. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to go, said the cat. I don't much care, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. On which side of the slight edge curve are you standing right now? Which way are you headed? Not sure. Perhaps in the middle, you say. Sorry, there is no middle. You're either going up or going down. The early part of both curves are fairly flat, so it can certainly look like you're moving along at a nice, even keel, headed neither up nor down. But appearances can be deceiving, and usually are. You are in motion. You have no choice in that. But in which direction? You have total choice in that. You are either improving or diminishing in personal and professional value. Your relationships are growing deeper and richer, or growing more stale and distant. You are learning more and more about the truths of life, or slipping deeper and deeper into denial about the truths of life. You are building your long-term security and financial freedom, or dismantling it. And your health is building day by day, or ebbing slowly away. Now, here's the good news. Where you are right now is poised in the present, with the past stretching behind you and the future lying ahead. You cannot change the past. You can absolutely change the future. The good news is you have a choice. Where you've been heading is not necessarily where you will be heading after you wake up tomorrow morning. The past does not equal the future. In fact, you can't look in both directions at once. You can look down or you can look up. You can look back, or you can look forward. You can look in the rearview mirror, or at the highway ahead. What matters now is your awareness of how the slight edge operates in your life, and your understanding that you have what you need right now to change that. All the information you need is already out there, and right here. You're already doing the actions. All you need to do is choose to have them serve and empower you, 
and keep on choosing. Do you have all the skills, knowledge, information, money and health, and friends, and every other resource you'll need to accomplish everything in your life right now? No. Can you put your hands on all those resources right now? No. But can you make a choice and come up with one penny? That's all it takes to start. Part 2. Chapter 7. Mastering Your Life Mastery is not reserved for the super-talented or even for those who are fortunate enough to have gotten an early start. It's available to anyone who is willing to get on the path and stay on it, regardless of age, sex, or experience. There are no shortcuts, no special tickets needed, and none available even if you wanted one. You don't need to be born with exceptional abilities to enter into mastery, nor is it reserved for the super-talented. You don't even need to have gotten an early start. The upward journey of success on the slight-edge curve is available to anyone who is willing to get on the path and stay on it. But it's only by being immersed in the process, the day-by-day -day progression, that you will acquire and refine the skills and awareness you need to master the slight edge and therefore achieve success and mastery in your life. All that's required in taking the first step. When you were a tiny child, you made your way around your world on your hands and knees, crawling. Everyone around you was walking. And one day, you got it into your little head that maybe you could give that a try. And once you had that thought, you had to give it a try. It was simply the next frontier. There was no way you weren't going to master it. So, step by step, literally, you worked on developing the skills you needed to walk. You grabbed onto something above you and pulled yourself upright. You stood up, holding onto a playpen or chair or some big stuffed animal. You were wobbly and unsure. You fell down. And then you tried it again. Until eventually, you stood up all by yourself, no hands. Then you took a step, and in that step, you assumed the mantle of mastery, even if external appearances didn't entirely confirm your new status. You try again, and again. After days of sidestepping around the coffee table, awkwardly bringing one little foot out from behind the other while you hold on to mom's or dad's fingers, you eventually take your first sequence of two steps, then three, and four, and, all alone, all by yourself, and to the encouraging cheers and applause of your proud family, baby steps, one at a time, and you're walking. In the process of learning to walk, did you spend more time falling down or standing up? If you were anything like most babies, you failed far more than you succeeded. Didn't matter, you were on the path of mastery. Did you ever have the thought of quitting? Did you ever say to yourself, you know, it looks like I'm just not cut out for walking. Oh, well, I guess I'll just have to crawl for the rest of my life, which really isn't all that bad when you stop to think about it. I'm sure I'll get used to it. Of course not. You were on the path of mastery. You were already a master. Now it was only a matter of your walking skills catching up. Constantly falling down was really uncomfortable. It hurt, and you probably looked pretty silly lying there on the floor like a beetle on its back. But you kept at it anyway. All babies are masters. We're designed that way. All babies instinctively understand the slight edge. We only let go of our natural pull towards success, our mastery, over the course of those 40,000 no's. 
Are there any situations in your life today where you've given up and decided to keep crawling rather than go for what you really want, what you truly deserve? Have you lost the ability to make up a goal? Go for it and get it. Why don't you do what you did when you were just a year old? The answer is both simple and sad. Somewhere along the way, you lost faith. You became too grown up to take baby steps, too sure you would never succeed to let yourself fail a few times first. You gave up on the universal truth that simple little disciplines, done again and again over time, would move the biggest mountains. You forgot what you used to instinctively know, the slight edge. You stepped off the path of mastery. There is something treacherous about letting go of that childlike willingness to try and try again. It is this, settling for less, settling for failure, and giving up on baby steps soon becomes a habit. The first time you give up, it's painful. But the more you give up, the easier and easier it gets, and success recedes further and further from your grasp. Can you guess why? That's right. It's the slight edge working against you. But as always, all we need to do is turn the coin over to find the good news. It's just as easy to step into the habit of succeeding as it is to slip into the habit of failing. The longer you live, the easier it can get. And you can step back onto the path of mastery any time you want. Wanting Napoleon Hill, author of Think and Grow Rich, summarized one principle of success. There is one quality which one must possess to win, and that is definiteness of purpose, the knowledge of what one wants, and a burning desire to possess it. The word want has two meanings. It can mean you desire something. It can also mean you lack something. And in a way, those aren't really two meanings. They're two sides of the same meaning. We tend to desire what we lack and lack what we desire. That means your dreams can be painful. Letting yourself become aware of what it is you desire but don't presently have means experiencing the lack side of the coin as well as the desire side. It means becoming more fully aware of what you don't have. It means staring at your present reality with a sober eye and refusing to kid yourself. And noticing that you're not where you want to be can be uncomfortable. Wanting hurts. Here's an interesting thing. If putting a voice to your fondest dreams can make you a little uncomfortable, it can also make everyone around you uncomfortable, and often far more so. Tell your five closest friends about your biggest ambition and watch how many of them squirm. Why? Because showing them your want, or your desire, also reminds them of their want, or lack. This is one reason that when you're formulating goals and creating a vision for your future, it's important to be careful whom you share them with. It's natural to share your enthusiasm with everyone around you, and it's also useful to remember that people often tend to respond by raining on your parade. When they do, it's not out of malice or the conscious desire to blunt your excitement. More often, it's simply a form of self-defense. They'd rather not hear about the vision you have because it reminds them of the one they've lost. What most people call a problem is simply a gap an open space between point A and point B. And if you keep an open mind, it's an open space you can bridge. That gap can work against you, or it can work for you. The gap between A and B cannot last forever. 
It has to resolve, and it will, one way or the other. It's a law of nature, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. But you do have a choice in how it resolves. One way to resolve the tension is to move your point A, or the way things are today, steadily closer and closer to point B, the way you want things to be. Let yourself be drawn by the magnet of your dreams, pulled along by the future. Remember what pulls those who dwell in the failure curve? The past. And what pulls people who live in the success curve? The future. People who live with huge, vivid, clearly articulated dreams are pulled along toward those dreams with such force they become practically unstoppable. What made people like Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi or Mother Teresa, Edison or IBM's Thomas Watson, Wilberforce or Lincoln, such forces of nature that nothing could stand in their way, no matter what the odds or obstacles? It was not some magic in their character, though they certainly became people of unusual character along the way. It was the power of their dreams. The vision each of these men and women held created a magnetic force against which no opposition could stand. Again, I'm using dramatic examples of famous people, but the exact same thing occurs with people you and I have never heard of, everyday people who are not at all famous, but simply have dreams they care about and keep alive every day. That's the force you can harness in the pursuit of your own dreams. What about the other direction? I said there were two ways that tension can resolve, and the other one is the way that works against you. If you don't close the gap by moving your present circumstance constantly toward your goals and dreams, how else can you let the tension dissipate? Quit dreaming. Just let go of your dreams, goals, ambitions, and aspirations. Settle for less. Make point B disappear. Just delete it, and poof, the tension is gone. And that, sadly, is the choice that the 95% who travel the failure curve eventually make. It's not hard to understand why so many people make that second choice. After all, when you're standing here at point A, gazing off into the distance at point B, it's easy to be intimidated by how far away it looks. But remember, you have to go one direction or the other. You can't stand still. Everything is constantly changing. There are only two possibilities. Either you let go of where you are and get to where you could be, or you hang on to where you are and give up where you could be. You are either going for your dreams or giving up your dreams. Stretching for what you could be or settling for what you are. There is simply no in-between. Remember, this is the slight edge, and doing nothing means going down. It's your choice. Those two slight-edge curves, the success curve and the failure curve, run parallel to each other for a long time. The two paths may be so close together that it's almost impossible for most people to see the distinction between them. Then, all of a sudden, they veer away from each other, the success curve shooting up like an eagle and the failure curve plummeting downward like a stock market crash. The people living on top who take responsibility live a life that is in some ways uncomfortable. Successful people do what unsuccessful people are not willing to do, and that often means living outside the limits of one's own comfort zone. When you're one out of 20, you'll always be going the opposite direction from the other 19. The people on the other side are comfortable. They're with the masses. Their lives are more comfortable early on, but become more uncomfortable later on. 
Suddenly, late in life, they find they don't have the finances, don't have the health, no longer have the relationships, and their lives become very uncomfortable. Those on the success curve, by contrast, end up far more comfortable later on because they have the finances, the health, the relationships, the successes. This means changing your thinking about the comfort zone. It's a change in philosophy. It means embracing living uncomfortably in order to attain a life that is genuinely comfortable, not deceptively comfortable. As I had prepared myself to go on a first sales call, I had been literally praying for help, and an answer came. In this case, it came in the form of an article I happened to read in a magazine. The article was about funerals, and it informed me that at the average funeral, about ten people cry. I couldn't believe it. Ten people? That's it? You mean, I go through my entire life, spend years and years going through all these trials and tribulations and achievements and joys and heartbreaks, and at the end of it, there are only ten people who care enough to cry? Oh, at first this really bummed me out. And then, it was liberating. If the odds are that iffy as to whether or not they even cry at my funeral, then why am I spending so much time worrying about what they're thinking now? Why would I be afraid of rejection? Why would I be concerned about what the majority thinks? Why would I be worried about what the 95% say, think, or do? Reading that article enlarged my comfort zone and gave me an edge of courage, just a tiny edge, but an edge I hadn't had before, a slight edge. A few days later, I happened to be thinking about that article as I sat in my car, stopped in traffic. Just then I saw why we were all stopped. A funeral procession went by. It took less than a minute because it contained only a few cars. As traffic started slowly moving again, I thought, that person lived his or her entire life worrying about what other people thought. And it suddenly hit me. Who has long funeral possessions? At whose funerals do thousands cry? For whom do the millions mourn? For those who will do what others are not willing to do. For the people for whom we erect statues. Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Lincoln. Gigantic funerals are held, and great crowds, sometimes entire nations, mourn for those people who spent their lives not worrying about what others thought. Chapter 8. Faces of the Slight Edge There are several faces of the slight edge I want to point out to you, because they each represent a power that, once you recognize it in your life, you can harness in your pursuit of your dreams. They are momentum, completion, habit, reflection, and celebration. Harness the power of momentum. Who won the race, the tortoise or the hare? We all know the answer to that one. Yet we live in a world where most everyone has come to expect instant this and instant that. And if we don't get the results we're after faster and faster, we quit. The slight edge is simple disciplines compounded over time. That's how the tortoise won. That's how you get to be a winner, too. Having said that, let me ask this. What's the real point of the story of the tortoise and the hare? All together now. Slow and steady wins the race, right? But notice something here. The point is not that there's any special virtue to moving slowly. There's nothing inherently good about slowness. And it's just as possible to move too slowly as to move too quickly. 
The key word in the Aesop moral is not slow, it's steady. Steady wins the race. That's the truth of it. The fable of the tortoise and the hare is really about the remarkable power of momentum. A body at rest tends to stay at rest, and a body in motion tends to remain in motion. That's why your activity is so important. Once you're in motion, it's easy to keep on keeping on. Once you stop, it's hard to change from stop to go. A Chinese proverb says it well. Be not afraid of going slowly. Be afraid only of standing still. In my business, I coach people how to build large organizations one person at a time with very simple, easy-to-do actions done every day. I've found that it's far more effective to take one business-building action every day for a week than to take seven or ten or even two dozen all at once and then take the rest of the week off. People who do the first, week in and week out, build an organization. People who do the second, don't, even if they actually take a greater number of those business-building actions than the other people. Why not? No momentum. After six days off, they have to start all over again getting themselves geared up and inspired to get back into action. It can take a good amount of energy and initiative to get yourself started in a new activity, but it takes far, far less to keep yourself doing it once you've started. There's another reason once a day is better than seven times once a week. The daily rhythm of the thing starts to change you. It becomes part of your routine, and as it does, it becomes part of who you are. That doesn't happen with a once-in-a-while all-out effort. Harness the power of completion. Another way you gather momentum and harness it to your advantage is by practicing an activity called completion. Are there any things that are incomplete in your life? Any unpaid bills? Have you done your taxes? Did you borrow a book or tool you have yet to return? Is there someone who needs to hear you say, I love you, or I'm sorry, or thank you, I appreciate you? Do you have any unfinished projects? Any unkept promises, like taking a weekend away with your spouse or taking your kids somewhere special? Are there any agreements or commitments you've left hanging? Each and every incomplete thing in your life or work exerts a draining force on you because it blocks your momentum, inhibits your ability to move forward, to progress and improve. Incomplete things keep calling you back to the past to take care of them. Here's the unfortunate and powerfully destructive truth of being incomplete. It keeps the past alive. Remember, people who live on the success curve are pulled by the future, while those who dwell on the failure curve are pulled by the past. And a surefire way to be forced to live as a prisoner of your past is to not complete things. Is it easy to do? Yes. Wait, let's consider that for a moment. No, actually, it's not always easy to complete those incomplete things in life not when you've got a truckload of them to take care of. That stack of incompletions can loom larger than the Sears Tower. They can be absolutely overwhelming, especially when you realize that whatever might have been keeping you from completing them in the first place, fear of confronting the issue, feeling intimidated or overwhelmed by it, worrying that it might be difficult or uncomfortable, well, all of that has been compounded by the slight edge, too. That's the slight edge working against you. That's how the pile got so big to begin with. And the truth is, even those incompletions that seem difficult would have been a lot easier to do when they first came up than they might be now. 
Approaching that stack of undones with the slight edge in hand is not only the best way to deal with them, it's the only way you'll ever deal with them. Take on those incompletions in your life just as you took on learning to walk. Baby steps, one at a time, letting the slight edge work for you to help you complete whatever needs completing. Take on any one of your incomplete projects one at a time. And even if that one project seems too huge a mountain to climb, rummage around in its foothills until you find an initial step you can take. The biggest meal is still eaten one bite at a time. So find something you can do and do that. Make a phone call. Write a letter. Give 15 minutes to completing something every day. Is it easy not to do? Absolutely. And if you don't do it today, will it destroy you? Well, you know the rest. So sing along. Harness the Power of Habit Although the following bit of wisdom has been attributed to various people, there is no known originating author. But the wisdom isn't diminished, and it is proven in every one of our lives every day. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. We often take habits for granted. We're all aware that habits exist, though we often are not as aware of our own as others are. However, we seldom realize the enormous power of habits. A habit is something you do without thinking. You come home from work, walk into the house, pull a beer out of the fridge and flick on the TV while you're talking to someone on the phone, without any conscious decision that a beer is exactly what you need right now or that there is something you urgently need to see on television. There are two kinds of habits, those that serve you and those that don't. Brushing your teeth is a habit that serves you. Biting your nails is one that doesn't. Looking for the best in people is a habit which serves you. Anticipating their worst is a habit which doesn't. The first type of habit wields the force of the slight edge on your behalf and moves you along the success curve. The second turns the slight edge subtly but remorselessly against you and pulls you down on the failure curve. Getting up early can become a habit. So can getting up late and staying up late. Spending more than you earn can become a habit. So can putting a piece of every paycheck into a retirement account. The way a behavior turns into a habit is by repeating it over and over and over again until it becomes automatic. The creation of habits is pure slight edge. Simple little actions repeated over time. The compounded effect of those habits over time will either work for you or against you, depending on whether they're habits that serve you or habits that don't. Your habits are what will propel you up the success curve or down the failure curve. It's interesting to note where your habits really come from. They arise out of your actions, true, but where do your actions come from? Remember this? Your habits come from your daily activities compounded over time. And your activities are the result of the choices you make in the moment. Your choices come from your habits of thought, which are the product of your thinking, which comes from the view you have of the world and your place in it, your philosophy. Which is why the key to your success, the key to mastering the slight edge through the long-term effect of your everyday habits of thought and action, is your philosophy. Want to know where the slight edge is taking you? Look at your predominant habits of thought. My friend John Fogg calls them your habitudes and the kinds of choices you habitually make. 
It's these habits that are taking you up the success curve or down the failure curve of the slight edge. It's tough to get rid of the habit you don't want by facing it head on. The way to accomplish it is to replace the unwanted habit with another habit that you do want. And creating new and better habits, ones that empower and serve you, is something you know how to do. You do it the same way you built any habit you have, one step at a time, baby steps, the slight edge. Harness the power of reflection. In my business, I often see people make the mistake of thinking they're being productive because they're being busy. Being productive and being busy are not necessarily the same thing. Doing things won't create your success. Doing the right things will. And if you're doing the wrong things, doing more of them won't increase your odds of success. It will only take you farther from success, faster. Nobody sets out to end up far from their goals. We all believe we're headed down the right path, or at least a reasonably right one. People get out of bed, go to work, and work hard. They love their families. They put smiles on their faces. They do everything they're supposed to do, and they think they've had a progressive day, or at least set out to have one. And all too often, what really happened is that they spent the day treading water like a duck swimming upriver against a strong current, its little webbed feet flailing away underneath, but getting him nowhere. Everybody's busy. Everyone does the actions. But were they the right actions? Were those actions productive? Did you take a step forward? These are questions that most people never take time to think about. In the 12-step system, this is called taking a searching and fearless personal inventory. I honestly encourage you to get a little searching and fearless with yourself. Keep your progress, or the lack of it, in your face. Here's a powerful exercise. Instead of writing down what you're going to do, chances are you've been doing that your entire life anyway and it doesn't make you any better at doing them, write down at the end of the day what you did do that day. What actions did you take today that made you successful? Did you read 10 pages of a good book? Did you eat healthy food and get some exercise? Did you engage in positive associations? Did you do the things that you need to do to be successful in your business? Did you tell somebody, I love you? At the end of a week, look back over your lists and take inventory. Not only will it tell you a lot about the truth of your everyday life, chances are good that the mere act of recording this daily reflection will have already started changing what you do. Here's what this exercise did for me the first time I did it. After the first few days, I found that by 10 o'clock in the morning, I was changing my normal course for the day and engaging in more positive, slight-edge actions because I didn't want to face that man in the mirror empty-handed again that night. When what you didn't improve one day is clear to you and you're aware of it, by 10 o'clock the next morning, you'll be hunting for self-improvements like a heat-seeking missile. You'll be reading, listening, associating to and with things and people that empower you. You won't be able to help it. You'll become so motivated that nothing, nothing will prevent you from improving. Harness the Power of Celebration There is another critical reason the power of reflection is so important. It's not just to be a nag and remind you when you're slacking off. It's also to point out to you all the positive steps you're taking. It's the slight-edge power of reflection and acknowledgement. Celebration. Keep your slight-edge activities, 
your right choices and incremental successes right out in the open where you can see them and celebrate them. Remember that all the activity ever required to apply the slight edge for your success is nothing but a series of baby steps. Trust the process. Acknowledge those steps, no matter how small or insignificant they may seem at the time. Is it easy to do? Yes. Easy not to do? Yes. If you don't do it, will it destroy you? No. But that simple error in judgment, compounded over time, will ruin your chances for success. Chapter 9. Mastering Yourself The greatest gift you could ever give yourself is also the wisest business investment you could ever make. It is also the most critical step in accomplishing any challenging task and is the one step without which all other success strategies, no matter how brilliant or time-tested, are doomed to fail. What is this mysterious gift? It is your own personal development. Investing in your own improvement, your own personal growth and betterment, is all these things and more. Abraham Lincoln said, Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. In other words, he would spend twice as much time working on himself as on the task itself. What do most people do? They grab the axe, dull or not, and start wailing away at the tree. And if they aren't making a major dent in that tree pretty soon, they quit and probably mutter something about how it's the tree's fault. How you swing the axe, how hard, in what arc, and with what rhythm on exactly what spot you hit the tree, all these are strategies that concern your actions and they can all be measured, weighed, and improved. But it starts with the axe itself. And the axe is you. Results come last. It is easy to be seduced by the promise of results. We live in a results-oriented world, a culture that overwhelmingly measures the success of a course of action by its results. Talk is cheap, after all. And what is it that really matters? Results. The bottom line. Show me. Proof of the pudding's in the eating, right? But there is a problem here. There's a flaw in this thinking. In fact, the flaw in this thinking is so profound, 95% of all people's efforts are ending up as failure. And what is so remarkable is that this isn't some deep, hidden, subtle flaw. It's so obvious, everyone ought to see it. But it's so deeply ingrained in our culture, nearly everyone is hypnotized into missing it. Here is the flaw. How can you judge the course of action you're taking by its results when its results come last? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of two types of foundation. He spoke about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And then he told of a second character, the foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The foundation upon which you are building the house of your life is what will determine the nature of the house itself. Will the house stand? Will it fall apart? Will it leak? Or will it withstand whatever weather nature throws at it? What results will your life produce? It is a critically important question, because by the time the results are in, the outcome will already be pretty well determined. 
You can't wait for your results to judge your actions. You can't wait to see what kind of house you've got before you judge whether or not it had a sturdy foundation. Your success will always be the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Your philosophy comes first. Your results come last. And this brings us to the most important slight edge strategy of all. Continuous Learning American author, humorist, and common-sense commentator Mark Twain observed, The trouble with the world is not that people know too little, but that they know so many things that ain't so. We've talked about all sorts of forces you can harness to help power your path through life. The most important force of all, the force that drives the whole process of living with the slight edge, is the power of continuous learning. Once you've set foot on the path of mastery and grasped the philosophy of the slight edge, educating yourself through any and all means available is the critical process that will keep you on that path and make the slight edge work for you. I don't mean education in the more narrowly defined sense of learning specific skills or subjects. Naturally, you need to pursue continuous learning in order to acquire the knowledge and skills involved in mastering any subject or pursuit that will contribute to your personal and professional growth and development. But it's more than simply a matter of acquiring specific knowledge. Continuous, lifelong learning is the material from which you continually build your philosophy. And by now, you and I both know how important that is. Learning is also the material from which you build your awareness, and that is also critical in mastering the slight edge. When was the last time you attended a seminar or took an adult education class? Not because you were required to, but simply to improve yourself. When was the last time you went bowling? If your bowling average is over 200, congratulations, you're a heck of a bowler, and you may want to rethink your priorities. I know bowling is one of the most popular pastimes in the United States, but wouldn't you rather have success be your most popular pastime? I'm not picking on bowling or any other form of recreation. We need balance in our lives, and taking time at the bowling alley can also serve you in all sorts of ways. Your fitness, your relationships with your friends, your ability to let work go, to relax and have fun. All good things. But the question is, are you developing yourself? Are you building your dream or only your boss's? Shape your philosophy by reading just one chapter of an information-rich, inspiring book every day. Listen to 15 minutes of a life-transforming audio cassette or CD. Take a course or seminar every few weeks or months. Are these things easy to do? Sure. And those simple disciplines, compounded over time, like a penny doubled every day for a month, will send you up to the top. Are they easy not to do? No question. And if you don't do them, will you destroy your life today? Of course not. But that simple error in judgment, compounded over time, will pull you down the curve of failure and take away everything you've hoped for and dreamed about forever. Let me ask you a question. If five frogs sat on a lily pad and one decided to jump off, how many will be left? The answer is five. All of them are still sitting there. Because one frog only decided to jump. He didn't actually jump. The famous Chinese proverb says, The journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Another wonderful example of traditional slight-edge wisdom. But note, the journey starts with taking a single step. 
not with thinking about taking a step. Plenty of people accumulate knowledge but still dwell on the failure curve. It's not only the quantity of knowledge that sets and keeps your course, but also the quality of knowledge and the habitual action behind it. There are different types of knowledge and different avenues of learning. If you want to stay grounded and move ahead at the same time, you need a balance and you need habitual action that reflects your philosophy. In my marketing business, I'm often asked for the key to success. What's the one thing I can do to guarantee my success? My answer is always the same. Be here actively immersed in the process one year from now. That's really the only right answer. It's the slight edge answer. You can't build your dream by what you're going to do or planning to do or intend to do. You only build your dream by building it. If you aren't doing, you're dying. Life is doing. Confucius said, Knowledge without practice is useless. Practice without knowledge is dangerous. I can read a book like As a Man Thinketh, return it to my bookshelf, then come back a year later and read it again, and it feels like somebody sneaked into my room while I was sleeping and completely rewrote the book. Why? Because of the learning by doing I've gone through in the interim. My experiences have changed my perspective. Now, when I read a particular passage or point the author makes, I understand it in a way I could not have possibly seen a year ago. And that, in turn, informs my behavior. Now, when I go to engage in my activity of the next day, I can apply what I've learned from James Allen in a way that I would have not thought of even 24 hours ago. Book smarts, street smarts. Learning by study, learning by doing. Read about it, apply it. See it in action. Take that practical experience back to my reading. Deepen my understanding. Take that deeper understanding back to my activity. It's a never-ending cycle, each aspect of learning feeding the other. Like climbing a ladder. Right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. Can you imagine trying to climb a ladder with only your right foot? The two work together. What's more, they not only work better together each amplifying the other, but the truth is they really cannot work separately, at least not for long. You can't go to the top based purely on knowledge learned in study. You can't go to the top purely through knowledge gleaned through action. The two have to work together. Balancing book smarts and street smarts is one aspect of that, and so is the daily success strategy that we'll look at next, course correction. Have you driven on any roads lately that are perfectly straight? Even when you're on one of those interstates it seem like a long, straight line to forever, do you hold the steering wheel perfectly still? Or do you move it back and forth, constantly correcting the direction the car is headed? That constant moving of the steering wheel is so familiar, it's second nature, and you probably never think about it. But if you decided to hold the wheel rigidly in place, you'd be off the road, probably in less than a minute. And in case you think that's just a matter of engineering or of imperfections in the road surface, this next example may come as a bit of a shock. On its way to the moon, the miracle of modern engineering that is an Apollo rocket is actually on course only 2 or 3% of the time. For at least 97% of the time it takes to get from the Earth to the moon, it's off course. 
In a journey of nearly a quarter of a million miles, the vehicle is on track for only 7,500 miles. Or, to put it another way, for every half hour the ship is in flight, it is on course for less than 60 seconds. And it gets to the moon. How is that possible? Because modern space travel is a masterful example of the slight edge in action. If this machine, one of the most sophisticated, expensive, and finely calibrated pieces of technology ever devised, was correcting its own off-course errors 29 minutes out of every 30, is it reasonable to expect that you could do better than that? And even if you were able to match the rocket's degree of accuracy, you'd still be perfectly on target, on track, and on course no more than 10 days per year. For anyone who lacks a grasp of the slight edge, being off course is something to be avoided at all costs. After all, if you're off course, you're failing, right? But those who understand the slight edge embrace Thomas Watson's philosophy about failure. Here is a more extended version of what he said. Would you like me to give you the formula for success? It's quite simple, really. Double your rate of failure. You're thinking of failure as the enemy of success, but it isn't at all. You can be discouraged by failure, or you can learn from it. So go ahead and make mistakes. Make all you can. Because, remember, that's where you'll find success. On the other side of failure. Remember, the rocket got there, and so can you. Why? Because of continuous course correction. Your slight edge, a consistent series of tiny, seemingly insignificant actions, easy to do and easy not to do, and in this case, doing them leads you directly to the moon instead of shooting off into the vacuum of outer space. You're hungry. There's a bunch of greasy junk food in a vending machine beckoning you, and you choose a salad or a piece of fruit instead. You're having coffee with friends, and they start griping, complaining about their work, their bosses, their jobs, and you find a way to change the subject, because you know that if the talk doesn't get onto a positive track within another 60 seconds, you'll find a reason to excuse yourself. Knowing the slight edge, you make the adjustment automatically. You make those right choices, the ones that serve you. You do those simple, seemingly insignificant things that forward your progress up the success curve. You read good books. You listen to motivating tapes. You hang around successful people who empower you. You're a five percenter, a winner, a success. Once you know the slight edge, you know that in getting from point A to point B, you'll be off track most of the time. And you know that it's the adjustments those little, seemingly insignificant corrections in direction that have the most power in your life. Plan, Do, Review is an approach to learning that began gaining credibility in educational institutions toward the end of the 20th century. And it's used in some of the better schools today. It's a slight edge strategy. Students plan what they're going to learn and create their own activities and experiments for study. Then they do what they planned. And then they review their planning and doing to see if anything was missing to help them learn what could be done to improve the process and the results they've accomplished. Then they plug these new insights into their next plan and they're often running up the slight edge curve to success. 
The operative slight edge strategy at work here is the constant and consistent back and forth of doing actions and correcting those actions. Course correction, just like the moon rocket. What this strategy produces is what business management philosophy has come to call continuous improvement. This idea was introduced to Japan after World War II by an American, W. Edwards Deming. A remarkable statistician, Dr. Deming consulted and lectured Japanese industrial leaders about total quality. He taught that the system is the solution and showed how it's always the source of the problem as well. Remember what happened to the Japanese and American auto industries in the 70s and 80s? The Japanese ate America's lunch in the marketplace. Know why? Slight edge strategy. They had it, we didn't. The Japanese took Deming's slight edge teachings about simple little disciplines in improving quality, compounded them over time, and in less than a decade, they blew the much larger, richer, and more powerful industry leader, the United States, out of the water. So far out of the water, in fact, that the top-selling car in America for years was the Honda. It wasn't that the Americans didn't improve. The 1983 Chevy was clearly superior to the 1973 Chevy. But General Motors kept looking for those big breakthroughs, while the Japanese kept making little, seemingly insignificant improvements, which, compounded over time, enabled them to steal the spotlight in what was once almost exclusively an American car show. The Japanese had major automotive breakthroughs too, but they were the result of their slight-edge strategy. In the 1990s, the American auto industry made a quick comeback. Great cars, record sales, and profits. It was a stunning turnaround. And what turned it around were our automakers finally embracing the teachings of W. Edwards Deming. That a commitment to developing and sticking to a slight-edge strategy will absolutely, positively send you to the top. Plan, do, review creates a structure and support system for continuously improving. It's the strategy of constant course correction. The slight edge is the process. You choose which way it goes, up with the 5% or down with the other 95%. You don't just make that choice once and then say, ah, I'm finished, now I'm all set. You make that choice moment to moment and keep making it every month and every day for the rest of your life. Each new moment will present you with a new slight-edge choice to be made. Before long, it will become natural and automatic. But when you first begin, it will require your constant awareness. Is it easy to do? Yes. Is it easy not to do? Of course. If you don't do it, will your life collapse? No, not today. But that simple error in judgment, compounded over time, will pull you down the failure curve, absolutely and irrevocably, no questions asked. Unless you accept the choice and keep on accepting it day by day and moment by moment. Throughout human history, and long before there were such things as books, universities, or continuing education programs, there has been one tried and true path for learning a skill, craft, art, trade, or profession. Go study with a master. All the great traditions of learning say the same thing. If you want to learn how to do something well, go find a master of that skill and apprentice yourself. 
The mentor-apprentice model is experiencing a tremendous surge in popularity right now. Mentoring networks, agencies, and organizations are springing up in all sorts of professions. And this doesn't surprise me in the least. With the advent of the Internet culture, there has been an explosion in information over the past decade. Now we're starting to realize that information alone is not enough. And information plus personal experience, or the school of hard knocks, is not enough. We need some way to process all that information and experience and integrate it. And there's only one reliable, solid way to do that. Find someone who's already mastered an area and model yourself on that person's experience. To apply this principle doesn't require a formal mentor-apprentice relationship. Whatever goals you aspire to, just seek out people who have achieved the same or very similar goals, or who are well along the path, and go camp on their doorsteps, or do whatever you can to associate with them, emulate them, let their grasp, understanding, and mastery of the subject rub off on you. If you want to raise the quality of your life, hang out with people who have been there and done that. If you want to be a great public speaker, spend time with great speakers. If you want to be a success in business, then find a way to spend time in the company of successful business people. If it's important to you to be a terrific parent, the best thing you can do to further that aim is to spend lots of time with men and women who have mastered parenting. You can define a society by the heroes it keeps. You can also define a person by the heroes he or she keeps. Who are your heroes? Who are you modeling yourself after? The 95% on the failure curve tend to accept the heroes society plants in front of them. Film stars, America's version of royalty. Rock stars, sports stars. I can certainly admire these folks, but I always ask myself, can I emulate them? Practically speaking, can I convert my admiration into constructive modeling that increases my learning and moves my own life forward? Too often, we make heroes out of people who can't help us, whose lives are fantasies, not genuine role models. Take a look at who your heroes are, write down a list and examine it. Ask yourself, are these people doing the kinds of things that I aspire to do and living the kinds of lives that I aspire to live? Can they really help me become who I want to become? Find people who have done what you want to do and surround yourself with them. That's learning through modeling and it's a powerful part of learning how to understand and use the slight edge. The Law of Association While I was sitting at the Phoenix airport, thinking about my new friend, the shoeshine woman, I mused over this thought. Your income tends to equal the average of the incomes of your five best friends. The principle does not apply solely to your finances. It operates in every aspect of your life. Your level of health will tend to be about the average level of health of your five best friends. Your personal development will be at about the average level of personal development of your five best friends. Your relationships, financial health, attitudes, level of success in your career, and everything else about your life will tend to be very close to the average level of each of these conditions in your five closest friends and associates. We all understand this principle instinctively. Our language is shot through with idioms that reflect it. You're known by the company you keep. Show me where you fish, and I'll show you what you catch. Birds of a feather flock together. 
The reason birds of a feather flock together is simply that they're all going in the same direction, headed for the same destination. Look at the people with whom you flock, the company you keep. What destination are they headed for? And is it where you want to be headed? This is a pass or fail test. There is no maybe about it. Remember, there is no standing still. We're all going in one of two directions, either up or down. Your association with each person you know is either empowering you or it's not, taking you up the success curve or down the failure curve. How can you tell? One way is to go back to the business of future and past, responsibility and blame. When you and this particular friend get together, are your conversations about responsibility, aspirations, and taking initiative? Or do they often seem to work their way around to blame or its cousins' envy, jealousy, resentment, and irritation? Do your conversations focus more on the future or the past? It's only natural, when you share a common history and set of experiences, to enjoy reminiscing over fond memories. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, does your relationship have a forward-looking, positive feeling to it? Or do the two of you get together and always seem to end up circling events of the past, like a cat endlessly turning around and round before it can settle down to sleep? If your relationship with someone has a theme of blame and feeds on the past, it's disempowering. If it has a theme of responsibility, self-reflection and change, and feels like something moving into the future, it's empowering. There may be some people with whom you're now spending two days a week, where you might decide you need to take that down to two hours. There may also be people with whom you're spending only two minutes, where you'll realize you need to spend far more time with them, two hours or two days. For many people, I think this can be a tough aspect of the slight edge to understand and accept. Most everything else about the slight edge, as you already know, is easy to do. But disassociating yourself from people who do not empower you can be a sad and difficult thing to do, especially if you love them, especially if they're old friends or dear family. So take heart. By disassociating, I don't necessarily mean cutting them out of your life completely, but casual relationships deserve casual time, not quality time. This part of slight-edge thinking requires a compassionate awareness. Having compassion and having direction are not mutually exclusive. They just take careful thought and discernment. You're not judging those people. You're simply asking yourself to be honest about whether or not those relationships are empowering you and helping to support your purpose and realize your dreams. Leadership I'm often asked, how do I become a leader? In our push-button, instant-everything world, People often seem to want to take an express route from their first stages of learning straight to leadership. But of course, it doesn't work that way. When you start at the beginning of anything, you're at the highest level of anxiety. As you learn, through study and doing, information and experience, book smarts and street smarts, you gradually lower your level of anxiety by raising your level of mastery. As you continue climbing that ladder of knowledge... Remember, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, study action, study action. You keep your eyes on worthy mentors, always using learning through modeling as your learning gyroscope to keep you on track. Using those three dimensions of learning, study, do, model, with slight edge persistence, 
In time, your level of mastery rises to the point where you turn around and realize others are modeling you. You have become worthy of emulating. How do you become a leader? Through honestly pursuing the path of self-mastery and continuous learning. Chapter 10. Turning Your Dreams into Reality While everyone has a somewhat different approach to goal-setting, there are four simple and fundamental steps you need to take for your dreams to turn into reality. Everyone who has ever created success, whether consciously or not, whether using this specific language or not, has gone through these four steps. They are the four universal truths of reaching for a big dream. For a goal to come true, first, you must write it down, make it specific, and give it a deadline. Next, you must look at it every day. You must understand and pay the price. And last, you must have a plan to start with. Step 1. Write it down. The most critical skill of achieving success in any area whatsoever, from sports to high finance, radiant health to fulfilling relationships, is the skill of envisioning. Envisioning something simply means having the ability to create a vivid picture of something that hasn't factually happened yet and make that picture so vivid that it feels real. Envisioning doesn't happen simply by creating a picture in your mind. If your dreams and aspirations are happening in your mind only, that's not envisioning, that's wishful thinking. It's like saying, I'll give it a try, which, as Yoda pointed out, really doesn't cut it when he said, do or not do, there is no try. Envisioning means quite literally making something up out of thin air and making it real. By definition, you can't do that within the confines of your skull. It needs to become physical. It needs to involve your senses. In other words, you need to write it down. Making pictures of it, which people sometimes call a dream board, is even better. Speaking out loud is most powerful of all. But at the very least, write it down. The moment you do, it has started to become real. What do you dream about? Pick a dream you have, any dream. Your dream house, your dream car, dream vacation, dream job, dream marriage, dream career. If you're hesitating, know this. These dreams may be as huge or as small as you like. Neither is better or more or less worthy to make real. Right now, push pause on your player. Pick up a pen and write down five dreams, pressing restart when you finish. Good. Now, add two descriptors that will make your dream more concrete. What and when. First, go back to each dream and add whatever wording you need to make each dream absolutely specific. For example, if you had a dream to be financially free, what does that mean specifically? How much money do you need in the bank or investments or coming in as annual income to achieve what you call financial freedom? If there are other conditions that need to be met, such as being completely debt-free, add those in, too. What if one of your dreams is radiant health? How would you make that specific? One way would be to describe exactly how you feel, what kinds of activities you engage in, and what they feel like. Imagine reading your dream to someone you care about, and that person saying, I'm not quite sure I grasp what you mean. Can you tell me exactly what you're shooting for? So again, Press pause and add specifics to the dreams you wrote down, pressing restart when you're done.
Now, the second descriptor, when. It's often been said, goals are dreams with deadlines. Let's reshape your dreams into goals by giving them deadlines. Go back through each dream and answer the question, by when? You've probably heard of the Pareto Principle, known more popularly as the 80-20 rule, which says that, for instance, 20% of the people in a sales force produce 80% of the results. Here's another application of Pareto's law. 80% of everything you do tends to get done in the last 20% of the time available. If you don't create a concrete deadline, that last 20% never seems to arrive, and you're always living in the 80% time that says, someday. So again, press pause and add the when to the dreams you wrote down, pressing restart when you're done. When you write your dreams down, when you've made them vivid and specific, when you've given them a concrete timeline for realization, then you've taken a giant step towards making them real. Step 2. Look at it every day. The single most compelling reason for writing down your dreams is so you can look at them and read them every day. The reason you need to look at them every day is the same reason you need to keep yourself in the company of positive people. You need to counteract the force of gravity, or, to put a different name to it, the force of mediocrity. Remember, it's 19 to 1, and you need to constantly remind your brain where you're headed or you'll drift away. If you don't keep yourself constantly, repeatedly focused on your destination, you'll be like a rocket ship without a gyroscope. You'll simply drift off gradually into the outer space of failure, never even coming remotely close to reaching the moon. Surround yourself with it. Keep your awareness in your face. Look at it every single day. Your brain is far more complex and powerful than the biggest computer in the world, and your own subconscious is by far the biggest distraction you have. Having your dreams concretely spelled out on paper in the most vivid and specific terms possible, and with a very tangible, concrete timeline, provides you with an environment of yes for your goals, dreams, and aspirations. And when that 19-to-1 force of gravity starts leaking from our subconscious and says, yeah, but are they really? We need to respond, yes, 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 yes. Here is the amazing thing, and I've seen this happen so many times, yet it never ceases to fill me with awe. When you set your goals, life has a way of rearranging itself. A series of events starts in motion that you could have never predicted or planned to get you there. If you just sit there and try to figure it out, it doesn't happen. But when you surround yourself with your goals, your subconscious brain goes to work on it. And if you have the right philosophy, the philosophy of the slight edge, then you will come up with the right actions and keep repeating those actions. And a series of events will kick in, including circumstances you could have never dreamed of that will take you to that goal. Step 3. Know and pay the price. Aha! There's the catch. I knew it. Here comes the big sacrifice. So what will I have to do? Throw away my television? Say goodbye to all fun and forego all my favorite foods? Give up a kidney? Chances are it's not quite that dramatic. Like anything else, when it comes to goals, we tend to see things like they're on the big screen. But they're not. Though your dreams may be big, in fact I hope they're huge, remember that the steps you're taking to get there are, what, huge? No, small. 
Tiny baby steps. Easy to do. The price you pay works the same way. You don't have to pay for your million-dollar dream with a million-dollar personal check. You can pay for it, well, with a penny a day. But you do need to understand what that penny is, and you do need to pay it. Whatever the dream, whatever the goal, there's a price you'll need to pay, and that means something you'll need to give up. It may be something as simple as giving up a type of junk food you're attached to, for the sake of your health, or something as subtle as giving up your right to be right, or your habit of exerting control over conversation for the sake of repairing and saving a relationship. It may mean postponing certain purchases or acquisitions, often called delayed gratification, or letting go of some pleasures for the sake of the pursuit of a long-term aim. At a certain point in my life, when I'd suffered some huge setbacks and lost everything I had, I came to a critical point of decision. I'd been an athlete all my life, and at this point I'd become a part of a softball team. We were serious, and we got pretty good. Before long, we were traveling and winning tournaments all over the place. Then I hit a point where I knew I had to get my career back on track. It was time to pick up the pieces, regroup, and move on. I also knew I couldn't do this without changing something. I had to pay a price. It was a difficult choice, but I walked away from our softball team. My friends couldn't believe it. You're quitting? And I said, hey, you guys, you're still my friends. I love you, but get another outfielder. They're all still on that team today, still winning tournaments, and I took the same time and invested it elsewhere. I had to plant and cultivate in a different field. Remember, there aren't many millionaires who bowl over 100. Why not? Because they left the bowling league behind to build their fortunes. Is that too large a price to pay is a question only you can answer. Remember this, whatever price you pay, there's a bigger price to pay for not doing it than the price for doing it. The price of neglect is much worse than the price of discipline. It may take a few years to put your success on track, but it takes your entire life to fail. Step 4. Start with a plan. This is the point where people are often thrown off track. The point is not to come up with the brilliant blueprint that will take you all the way to the finish line. The point is simply to come up with a plan that will get you out of the starting gate. You have to start with a plan, but the plan you start with will not be the plan that gets you there. What? That makes no sense at all. If this plan isn't going to get me to my goal, why bother designing it? What's the point? Aren't I just fooling myself with a pointless plan? People make the mistake of thinking they need the perfect plan. There is no perfect plan. By definition, there can't be. Because a plan is not getting there. It's only your jumping off point. And that's the reason you need a plan. If you have no plan, there will be no jumping off. You start with a plan, then go through the process of continuous learning through both study and doing, adjusting all the time through the kaizen of plan, do, review, and then adjust. Like a rocket to the moon, off track 97% of the time, your gyroscope feeding information to your dream computer to bring you back on track. You need a first plan so you can get to your second plan, so you can get to your third plan, so you can get to your fourth plan. Success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Keep holding that as your philosophy, and you will generate the attitudes and actions you need to keep progressively realizing a better and better plan. 
Your starting plan is not the plan that will ultimately get you there, but you need it so you have a place to start. Don't try to figure out the whole race. Just figure out where to put your foot for the starting line. Just start. The result looks incredibly complex, but it's not. It never is. It's always the simple little things that take you there. Everything you do, every decision you make, is either building your dream or building someone else's dream. Every single thing you do is either leading you away from the masses or leading you away with the masses. Every single thing you do is a slight edge decision. Chapter 11 Living the Slight Edge Vince Lombardi With the words, Gentlemen, this is a football, legendary football coach Vince Lombardi began each new session of training, never taking anything for granted and always viewing each of his players as a blank slate, despite the fact that they were all seasoned pros. The first time Lombardi uttered his famous line, Green Bay Packer great Max McGee delivered his own immortal retort, Uh, Coach, could you slow down a little? You're going too fast for us. And got a chuckle even from the unflappable Lombardi. No matter how great your aspirations, how tall the dream and great the leap it means, the eternally repeating truth of the slight edge is that it is always built of small, simple steps. Easy to do, and just as easy not to do. Don't go too fast, and don't be too proud to stop, look at your life, and tell yourself, this is a football. To the coach, the football was a single step that begins the thousand-mile journey. The football was Lombardi's penny. Now it's time to find yours. What one simple, single, easy-to-do activity can you do, day in and day out, that will have the greatest impact on your health? your personal development, your relationships, your finances, and your life itself. In this next section, I'll ask you to walk yourself through these five areas of your life, one by one, to examine what they mean to you and where your dreams lie in each. And then lay out for yourself your dreams and goals, specific, vivid, and with a timeline, the price you're willing to pay, a plan to start, And finally, one simple daily discipline that you will commit to doing each and every day from now on. Go ahead now and take this stroll through your life. Take a pencil as a walking stick. The Slight Edge and Your Health Of the three self-evident inalienable rights that ring from the American Declaration of Independence like a trumpet fanfare, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness— The first, without which the other two are irrelevant, is life. And the most basic condition for the free, unencumbered experience of life itself is health. There is nothing more basic than health. And there is no area of life where the slight edge is more vividly in operation, working either for you or against you. I always start with the area of health because when I'm in good physical shape, I need less sleep, think more clearly, feel better about everything, and get more accomplished. My simple daily discipline for my health is to exercise for at least a half an hour. When I started doing this, I have to admit, it didn't thrill me. That first day I went running was a real drag. I'd let myself go physically. It was harder than I expected it would be. The first day I ran for only about ten minutes. Then, over the next several weeks, I slowly worked my way up to my daily half hour. But even before that first week was over, 
I actually felt better than I had in months. I usually say that the slight edge does not work quickly, but the truth is that often you'll get some positive results fairly quickly. You may not achieve your ultimate goal in a week, a month, or even a year or two, but you'll see the positive changes far sooner than you might expect. That's the way it was with my running. Take a few moments to work out your own slight edge plan for your health. You don't need to feel limited or constricted by this exercise. You can always change and modify what you write here. Use a pencil. But do yourself a favor. Don't skip over this. Actually, take the time to write down some solid ideas. You can always add to it and refine it later. In fact, you'll have to. That's how the slight edge works. You're not supposed to get it perfect the first time. After I ask each question, press the pause button and take time to write down specifics. Then press play and go on to the next question. What are your dreams for your health? Be specific and vivid. Include a timeline. What price will you have to pay? How do you plan to start? What is one simple daily discipline you commit to? Now that you've given your dream a framework and a deadline, choose to use the slight edge to achieve it. The Slight Edge and Your Personal Development In the amazing book, As a Man Thinketh, James Allen said, You will become as small as your controlling desire or as great as your dominant aspiration. Over the long term, the limiting factor is never circumstance or fate. The limiting factor is always you. In the same way, and for the same reasons, the limitless scope of possibilities is also defined by one factor, you. You already know of my passion for this area and my number one slight edge recommendation. I teach everyone I work with to read at least 10 pages of a powerful, life-transforming book each and every day. Building your own personal self-improvement library may be the single most valuable and important investment, after your personal health, that you can make. In addition to reading 10 pages a day, I also teach people to listen to a self-improvement audio cassette or CD for at least 15 minutes every day. The average person spends between 250 and 350 hours every year driving to and from this place and that. That's about 40 minutes to an hour each and every day. Is it easy to do? Easy not to do. And if you don't do it, what will happen today? But that simple error in judgment, compounded over time, will leave you a willing participant in the conspiracy of mediocrity that nibbles away at the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of the 95% who live out their days under the curse of Thoreau's famous epitaph for humanity. From Walden, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Listening to audios is an especially powerful slight-edge tool because it can turn your downtime into uptime and double your productivity. You can drive to the store or work or school. You can jog, rollerblade, bike or walk, clean house, sit on planes, stand in line, pedal, row, ski, stretch and lift weights, all the while feeding your mind through life-transforming audios. And when you spend this time listening to true masters of the skills you seek to learn, you are using the third and most powerful method of learning, learning by modeling a mentor. Take a few moments to work out your own slight edge plan for your personal development.
use a pencil, and don't press start again until you've gotten your plan on paper. What are your dreams for your personal development? Be specific and vivid and give a timeline. What price will you have to pay? What day and date do you plan to start? What is one simple daily discipline you commit to? You may want to put the plans you've been creating onto a bulletin board that you'll see every day. Your bathroom mirror is a good place to write them too. Use a dry erase marker. The slight edge and your relationships. How often have you heard of a successful business person who achieved great financial success only at the expense of a rich family life? When writing about the law of association, I mentioned the importance of who you associate with in terms of its strategic effect on you. But there is a greater truth about your associations too, because the relationships you choose are not only a means to an end; they are also an end in themselves. All the success in the world means little if there is no one to share it with. Relationships too are both built up and torn down in the subtlest of ways. Because most people are not aware of the slight edge, the progress of their relationships tends to be a mystery. What makes a marriage grow richer over the years for one couple and grow stale, empty, and bitter for another? Nine times out of ten, or better, nineteen times out of twenty, there is no single significant answer. It's the little things, day by day, that add up over time to unshakable happiness or unsalvageable misery. You've no doubt heard the expression: "It's the little things that count." There could scarcely be a more succinct statement of the slight edge, and chances are you heard it said in the context of a relationship: the remembered birthdays, the little gifts, the gestures, the kind words, the remembered favorite color, the five minutes snatched from an impossibly hectic day to drop everything and hear the other's news, the word of encouragement. The reminder of your own belief in the other person, the listening. It's been said that the most important statements of friendship are usually spoken with five words or less. That is the wisdom of the slight edge. Those tiny thoughts and gestures that are startlingly easy to do and tragically easy not to do. The future of every relationship you have, like that of your health, is a choice that is always in your hands. And is no bigger than a penny. The key is to make the choice and keep making it. A special category of relationships, of course, is family. If you have children, you probably already know that they are, in many ways, your greatest legacy. No matter what the state of the educational system, the single most powerful influence on children will always be the people who raise them. Toss a rock into a pond, and you'll see ripples from its impact spreading out until they reach the opposite shore. The same thing happens in life. Only in most cases, you never see those ripples. Everything you do is important. When you smile at a child and encourage him, or scold him and tell him he's no good, in either case, you may see the splash it makes, and you may see the first or second ripple. But the impact goes far, far beyond what you see. You don't see all the ripples. You teach someone to read ten pages of a good book a day, and you may see how it changes her. But chances are, you won't see how it changes her kids, 
and her kids' friends, and their friends, and their friends' kids. And as these ripples spread out, they grow bigger. For better or for worse, with positive impact or negative impact, even your smallest actions create a ripple effect that has incalculably great impact on the world around you. No doubt you recognize this description of the ripple effect. It's our old friend, the slight edge. Now, take a little time to think about the relationships in your life and jot down a few thoughts about how you might work out your own slight edge plan for your deepening, strengthening, and enriching those relationships. This is perhaps the most personal area of the five, so they will probably require some thoughtful consideration. Don't feel pressured to restart the audio until you've thoroughly answered a question. This is your life. This is the reason you're reading this book. What are your dreams for your relationships? Be specific and vivid and write down a timeline. What price will you have to pay? What day and date do you plan to start? What one simple daily discipline will it require? Of all your plans, if you practice the slight edge, the results on this one may well be the most satisfying. The Slight Edge and Your Finances Vince Lombardi wryly observed, Winning is a habit. Unfortunately, so is losing. It's no accident that our exploration of the slight edge began with the story of a penny doubled. The world of finances is one of the easiest places there is to see, objectively and logically, the power of the slight edge in action. Everyone knows about the power of compound interest, right? Wrong. Everyone thinks they know about the power of compound interest. But most don't, not really. How many really do understand this power? 5%, the ones on the success curve of the slight edge. Remember the Pareto principle as applied to your goals deadlines? 80% of everything you do tends to get done in the last 20% of the time available. There's a similar law at work in most people's finances, only it's worse. It's Parkinson's Law, coined by Professor Cyril Northcutt Parkinson. Work expands to fill the time available for its completion. As applied to personal finances, it goes like this. Whatever I have, I spend. There is some good news here. In the last few years, the common sense of slight-edge personal finances has started making a comeback. The 1998 book, The Millionaire Next Door, bucked the trend toward flashier Donald Trump-style how-to finance books and instead gave example after example of how a cross-section of extraordinarily ordinary people became wealthy without inheritance, without high-paying jobs, without making a killing in the stock market, without any of the usual breakthrough paths to riches, but by doing simple, easy things every day. The first of its seven rules was, always live below your means. The book became a runaway bestseller. Living below your means is a classic slight-edge strategy. I bet you already have some very concrete thoughts about this area. Perhaps you've even been working on this part in the back of your mind ever since you read the story of the wealthy man and his two sons. Now it's time to start putting some of your thoughts to paper and sketch out an initial plan for realizing your financial dreams and goals. Let's get started. You know the drill. 
After listening to the question, press pause until you've thoroughly answered it. What are your dreams for your finances? Be specific, be vivid, and give yourself a timeline. What price will you have to pay? What is your plan to start? What is one simple daily discipline you will commit to? Those few minutes will change your lifestyle if you apply slight edge principles to that plan. The slight edge and your life. What do you want your life to mean? What we're looking for here are simple little things you can do every day, things that are as easy to do as they are not to do. The key here is not to spend too much time on this. Do the thing and you shall have the power. Go ahead, take pencil in hand and sketch it out. Remember, it's your life. What would you like it to mean? And remember this too. No matter how lofty or long-term your life dreams may seem, gentlemen, this is a football. It starts with a penny. Start finding your pennies. So let's get to it. Listen to the question, push pause, write your answer, and then press restart. What are your dreams for your life? Be specific, be vivid, and give yourself a deadline. What price are you willing to pay? What is your plan to start? What is one simple daily discipline you commit to? Where to go from here? Someday when I have the time, I'm going to... Someday when I have the money, I'm going to... Have you ever heard that said? Someday... It's a way we have of reinforcing the illusion that the future is safely far removed, that it doesn't really touch us. It's a lie. Not an intentional, willful deception, but a lie nonetheless. Someday is not a vision of my future. Someday is a fantasy, nothing more. Here's the damage we do with this illusion. We give weight to our someday fantasies. We squeeze some sense of enjoyment from them, as if they were real and thereby give ourselves permission to take no practical action whatsoever while we swim in the comforting sense that those someday scenarios will move closer to the unfolding present on their own. They won't. You've got to go claim them. Ask yourself, what is there in my life that I hold as someday? Do one simple daily discipline in each of these five key areas of your life. Your health, your personal development, your relationships, which includes family, your finances, and your life overall, which includes the meaning and purpose of your life, that forwards your success in each of those areas. Make a habit of doing some sort of daily review of these slight edge activities, either through keeping a journal, a list, working with a slight edge buddy, a coach, or some other regular consistent means. Spend high-quality time with men and women who have achieved goals and dreams similar to yours. In other words, model successful mentors, teachers, gurus, masters, and allies, and do it daily, weekly, and monthly, and you'll find yourself on the success curve, and you will turn your dreams into realities. Successful people put the slight edge to work for them, rather than against them, every day. They refuse to let themselves be swayed by their feelings, moods, or attitudes. They rule their lives by their philosophies, 
and do what it takes to get the job done, whether they feel like it or not. Successful people don't look for shortcuts, nor do they hope for the big breakthrough. They are always open to quantum leaps, knowing that such opportune moments do present themselves from time to time, but they focus on doing what they've put in front of themselves to do. They step onto the path of mastery, and once having set foot there, they stay on that path throughout their lives. Successful people never blame circumstances or other people. Instead, they take full responsibility for their lives. They use the past as a lesson, but do not dwell in it, and instead let themselves be pulled up and forward by the compelling force of the future. Successful people use inertia to build momentum, making their upward journey of success easier and easier. They know how to identify habits that don't serve them and replace them with those that do. They understand the powers of reflection, completion, and celebration, and they harness them constantly, using their radar for unfinished business to propel them forward rather than being sucked backward and downward. Successful people acquire the three kinds of knowledge they need to succeed. They create an ongoing support system of both book smarts and street smarts, learn through study and through doing, and they catalyze and accelerate that knowledge by finding mentors and modeling their successful behavior. They plan, they do, and then they review again and again and again. Successful people go to work on their philosophy first because they know it is the source of their attitudes, actions, results, and the quality of their lives. They understand activity, and because they do the thing, they have the power. They understand the power of daily disciplines. They understand the power of the water hyacinth and how to use it. They know when they are being offered the choice of wisdom. Successful people understand the slight edge, and they put it to work for them. So, where do you go from here? Find your penny, then start doubling it. Oh, man, what a great book. Man, there are tons of great hacks in that book. Um, that's, that's a book you're going to want to just mark that episode. You'll probably want to listen to that episode, um, this episode occasionally, and even go back and listen to it twice because there's so many good things in this book that you can actually apply to your life. Um, it's, it's such a powerful concept. Um, but if you get that right, everything else is going to start to become a little bit easier. Um, so, so here's your homework assignment and more importantly, it's your next hack. Um, it's actually just a phrase and I want you to ingrain and burn and just stamp this on your mind. Uh, and it's, it's something that was mentioned many, many a time in the book. You just listened to the slide edge. It's a question. Um, it's actually more of a statement. All right. And that is, it's easy to do and it's easy not to do. Okay. So whenever you're faced with even the smallest of choices, play that question in your head over and over again. Just make that a habit every day, whether you're about to spend money, whether you're about to work out or not work out, whether you're about to read or not read, whether you're about to get up early or sleep in, um, try and play that question, um, or that statement in your head 
over and over. You will be a uh, better individual for it. Um, all right. And, and just so you guys know, there's a couple other concepts that were mentioned in the book. Um, actually, this is a really good way to find what books to read if you really enjoyed a book. Um, most books mention other books. And usually uh, those books are pretty good too. Uh, I, I believe there was four books mentioned in the slide edge and they were uh, The Millionaire Next Door, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Think and Grow Rich, and As a Man Thinketh. And there's a, another concept that was mentioned in the book called the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 rule. I'm sure we're going to touch on that a little bit later. That's a very critical thing. But for now, uh, just remember that phrase. It's easy to do, and it's easy not to do. All right, homies. Episode three is now over. Peace out. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action, keep hacking and stacking your way to success.